It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <laughs> Hi, it's Eric with some thoughts for this week's audio essay on the topic of superposition. Now, to those of you in the know, superposition is an odd word in that it is the scientific concept we reach for when trying to describe the paradox of Schrodinger's cat in the theory and philosophy of quantum measurement. We don't yet know how to say that the cat is both dead and alive at the same time rigorously, so we fudge whatever is going on with this unfortunate feline and say that the cat and the quantum system on which its life depends are a mixture of two distinct states that are somehow commingled in a way that has defied a satisfying explanation for about a century. Now, I'm usually loath to appeal to such quantum concepts in everyday life, as there is a veritable industry of people making bad quantum analogies. For example, whenever you have a non-quantum system that is altered by its observation, that really has nothing to do with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Jane Goodall's chimpanzees are almost certainly altered in their behavior due to her presence. But there is likely no competent quantum theorist who would analogize chimps to electrons and Goodall to a Hermitian observable executing a quantum observation. Heisenberg adds nothing other than physics envy to the discussion of an entirely classical situation such as this. However, I have changed my mind in the case of superposition, as I would now like to explain. To begin with, superposition isn't a quantum phenomena. For example, imagine that you'd come from Europe to Australia and that you had both euros and Swiss francs in your pockets. You might then be said to be in a superposition because you have pocket change in both euros and francs rather than a pure state of only one currency or the other. The analog of a physical observable in this situation would be something like a multiple-choice question found on the landing card about the contents of your pockets. Here it is easy to see the danger of the setup. Assuming you have three times as much value in euros as you do in francs, what happens when you get a question that doesn't include your situation as an answer? What if the landing card asked, is all of your change in A, euros, or B, Swiss francs, with no other options available? Well. This, as stated, is a completely classical superposition problem having nothing to do with quantum theory. Were you to have such a classical question asked of you like this, there would have been no way for you to answer. However, if the answer were on the multiple choice menu, there would be no problem at all and you would give a clear answer determined by the state of your pockets. So if the state in question isn't on the multiple choice menu, the classical world is forced to go mute as there is no answer determined by the system. Whereas if it is found on the list of allowable choices, the answer is then completely determined by the system's state at the time that the question was asked. Oddly, the quantum world is, in a way, exactly as deterministic as the classical one just described, despite what you may have heard to the contrary. In order to understand this, we'll have to introduce a bit of jargon. So long as the system, now called the Hilbert space state, is on the list of answers, technically called the system of eigenvectors, corresponding to the question, now called a quantum observable, the question will return a completely deterministic answer, technically called the eigenvalue corresponding to the state eigenvector. These are, in a sense, good questions in quantum theory, because the answer corresponding to the state of the system actually appears as one of the multiple choice options. 
So if that is completely deterministic, well, then what happened to the famous quantum probability theory and the indeterminacy that we hear so much about? What if I told you that it were 100% confined to the situation which classical theory couldn't handle either? That is, quantum probability theory only becomes relevant when you ask bad quantum questions where the state of the system isn't on the list of multiple choice answers. When the landing card asked if all your change were completely in euros or only in francs, the classical system couldn't answer because three times the value of your Swiss francs were held in euros, so no answer could be determined. But if your pocket change were somehow quantum, well, then you might find that 75% of the time, your pocket coins would bizarrely turn into pure euros and would bewilderingly turn into pure francs 25% of the time just by virtue of your being asked for a measurement by the landing card. In the quantum theory, this is due to the multiple choice answers of the so-called observable represented by the landing card question not being well suited to the mixed state of your pockets in a superposition between euros and francs. In other words, quantum theory gets probabilistic only where classical theory went mute. All of the indeterminacy appears to come from asking bad multiple choice questions in both the classical and quantum regimes in which the state of the system doesn't fit any given answer. Quite honestly, I've never heard a physicist rework the issue of quantum probabilities in just this way so as to highlight that the probabilistic weirdness comes only from the quantum being overly solicitous and accommodating really bad questions. For some reason, they don't like the idea of calling an observable that doesn't have the state of the system as an allowable answer a bad question. But that is precisely why I do like it. It points out that the quantum is deterministic where the classical theory is deterministic, and only probabilistic where the classical theory is mute. And this is because it is weirdly willing to answer questions that are in a sense that can be made precise bad questions to begin with. That doesn't get rid of the mystery, but it recasts it so it doesn't sound quite so weird. The new question is, why would a quantum system overcompensate for the lousy questions being posed when the classical system seems to know not to answer? So why bring any of this up? Well, the first reason is that I couldn't resist sneaking in a personal reformulation of the quantum measurement problem that most people will have never considered. But the second reason is that I have come to believe that we are wasting our political lives on just such superposition questions. For example, let's see if we can solve the abortion debate problem right now on this podcast using superposition, as it is much easier than the abortion problem itself. The abortion debate problem is that everyone agrees that before fertilization there is no human life to worry about, and that after a baby is born there is no question that it has a right to live. Yet pro-choice and pro-life activists insist on telling us that the developing embryo is either a mere bundle of cells suddenly becoming a life only when born, or a full-fledged baby the moment the sperm enters the egg. You can guess my answer here. The question of, is it a baby's life or a woman's choice, is agreed upon by everyone before fertilization or following birth because the observable in question has the system as one of the two multiple choice answers in those two cases. However, during the process of embryonic development, something miraculous is taking place that we simply don't understand scientifically. Somehow a non-sentient blastula becomes a baby by a process utterly opaque to science, which as yet has no mature theory of consciousness. The system in utero is in a changing and progressing superposition tilted heavily towards not being a baby at the beginning and tilted heavily towards being one at the end of the pregnancy. But the problem here is that we have allowed the activists rather than the embryologists and developmental biologists to hand us the life versus choice observable with its two terrible multiple choice options. 
If we had let the embryologist set the multiple choice question, there would be at least 23 Carnegie stages for the embryo before you even get to fetal development. But instead of going forward from what we both know and don't know with high confidence about the system, we are instead permanently deranged by being stuck with Schrodinger's embryo by the activists who insist on working backwards from their political objectives. So does this somehow solve the abortion issue? Of course not. All it does is get us to see how ridiculously transparent we are in our politics that we would allow our society to be led by those activists who would shoehorn the central scientific miracle of human development into a nutty political binary of convenience. We don't even think to ask, who are these people who have left us at each other's throats debating an inappropriate multiple-choice question that can never be answered? Well, in the spirit of the portal, we are always looking for a way out of our perennial problems to try to find an exit. And I think that the technique here of teaching oneself to spot superposition problems in stalemated political systems brings a great deal of relief to those of us who find the perspective of naive activism a fairly impoverished worldview. The activist mindset is always trying to remove nuanced selections that might better match our world's needs from among the multiple choice answers until it finds a comical binary. Do you support the war on drugs? Yes or no? Are you for or against immigration? Should men and women be treated equally? Should we embrace capitalism or choose socialism? Racism, systemic problem or convenient excuse? Is China a trading partner or a strategic rival? Has technology stagnated or is it in fact racing ahead at breakneck speed? Has feminism gone too far or not far enough? In all of these cases, there is an entire industry built around writing articles that involve replacing conversations that might progress towards answers and agreement with simple multiple-choice political options that foreclose all hope. And in general, we can surmise when this has occurred because activism generally leaves a distinct signature where the true state of a system is best represented as a superposition of the last two remaining choices that bitterly divide us handed us by activists. So I will leave you with the following thought. The principle of superposition is not limited to quantum weirdness, and it may be governing your life at a level you have never considered. Think about where you are most divided from your loved ones politically. Then ask yourself, when I listen to the debates at my dinner table, am I hearing a set of multiple choice answers that sound like they were developed by scholars interested in understanding or by activists who were pushing for an outcome? If the latter, Think about whether you couldn't make more progress with those you love by recognizing that the truth is usually in some kind of a superposition of the last remaining answers pushed by the activists. But you don't have to accept these middle-brow binaries, dilemmas, and trilemmas. Instead, try asking a new question. If my loved ones and I trashed the terms of debate foisted upon us by strangers, activists, and the news media, could we together fashion a list of multiple-choice answers that we might agree contain an answer we all could live with and that better describes the true state of the system? I mean, do you really want open or closed borders? Do you really want to talk about psilocybin and heroin in the same breath? Do you really want to claim that there is no systemic oppression or that it governs every aspect of our lives? Before long, it is my hope that you will develop an intuition that many long-running stalemated discussions are really about having our lives shoehorned by others into inappropriate binaries that can only represent the state of our world as a superposition of inappropriate and simplistic answers that you never would have chosen for yourself. After a few brief words from our sponsors, I'll be back to introduce the guest for this episode's discussion. The 
Portal is thrilled to welcome back returning sponsor Wine Access this week with a somewhat obscure book recommendation. Check out Wine Snobbery and Exposé by Andrew Barr, which when it was first published in 1988 in the UK, tore the lid off some of the shady practices that the wine industry has used to intimidate their own customers. I bring this up because this is the reverse of the strategy at Wine Access, where their wine geeks always educate you to the fact that you can usually get a bottle of wine that is better quality at lower price if you stay away from the most famous labels. I hope you'll get as much out of Wine Access as I do, and it's now even easier to try with this new limited-time offer for our listeners. You can get $20 off your first purchase of $50 or more, which is an incredible savings on these outstanding wines that are already at a great value. To get your $20 off, just go to our special URL, wineaccess.com slash portal. With wineaccess.com slash portal, you're going to get yourself one hell of a bottle. With wineaccess.com slash portal, so why not order them bottles tonight? wineaccess.com slash portal. Returning sponsor Blinkist is out to make sure that book people remain book people. Now, how is that? Well, they know that there are lots of nonfiction titles that you're eager to read, but with a modern attention span, there's no way you're going to get to them all. So what's the answer? Well, they send out their team of expert close readers to read all the books you're thinking about and to digest them into 15-minute blinks summarizing the main points. That way you can either read or listen to a blink to decide whether you want to invest further in that book. A good example of this would be Walter Isaacson's books on Benjamin Franklin and Albert Einstein. You could figure out which of the two would be a better investment of your time. So with Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com portal and try it free for seven days, and you'll also save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com portal to start your free seven-day trial. You'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com portal. Today's guest is general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, a founder of the biotech firm Consul and former CTO at Coinbase. He's also a friend and one of the people in tech I always love talking with on almost any subject because of the originality of his homespun analyses. Balaji Srinivasan is a fellow STEM PhD who left research for tech. If you think about academics as having a natural culture that is often as strong or stronger than national or ethnic cultures, Balaji and I still maintain various sensibilities in common that reveal us to be academic expats from the system of research universities. In a different era, Balaji would likely have become a quirky professor loved by students and feared by anyone with the soul of an administrator. But perhaps because his move from Silicon Valley electrical engineering to tech was later in time and not quite as far of an intellectual jump from conventional East Coast mathematics, Balaji went in for a much more aggressive computer and data-centered vision of the future than I was prepared for. Balaji is a firm believer in visions where crypto and decentralized computing, together with other technologies, ultimately liberate us from the world of excess social engineering, financialization, and declining technical competence. Thus, I have always enjoyed our conversations immensely, as I view him as one of the most aggressive and generative futurists out there, with an interesting and original take on almost anything involving our various possible worlds to come. It was thus no surprise to me that Balaji was one of the earliest and clearest major voices on the coronavirus. While predictably derided and misportrayed by journalists and others as being part of a world of tech bro preppers deranged by cheap apocalyptic fantasies from too many dystopian video games, 
Balaji held his ground and calmly analytically explained why everyone needed to radically change her or his thinking as quickly as possible surrounding the virus. Of course, in that nearly forgotten academic world where such a highly original non-joiner would have been welcomed, Balaji might have spoken with the authority of a professor. Yet despite having a PhD from Stanford and having co-founded a major biotech company that sold for nine figures, I was shocked to see far less technical people making their living as writers taking pot shots at the so-called tech bro. Okay, I admit I don't get it. If you're male and you make a living in technology, you're automatically a dismissible bro, according to people who write for a living across the country in either Brooklyn or near DuPont Circle? Well, that's moronic. Balaji may be crazy, but he's certainly the right kind of crazy, according to us, and not a prepper, a grifter, or a bro. And if I may speak directly to the so-called commentariat, cut it out. Stop with the jealousy. You guys are losing mindshare for rational reasons because you can't compete with people who are actually trying to think ahead and help other people think rationally for themselves. If you want to compete with the Balajis of the world, stop trying to figure out who is up or who is down and start learning to look at the world from first principles. That's what they do. Then get the story early, get it right, and then show us how you don't back down. Dare your editors to fire you if they don't like the scoop you just filed and you did so responsibly. But whatever you do, you have a responsibility to the world to stop running everyone outside your little club down for the thought crime of giving good advice that contradicts whatever nonsense is being spouted by the three-letter official organization that you've been led to believe represents the gold standard or the word of God like the WHO or the CDC. It's enough already, capiche? Okay, so Balaji might be crazy, but he's very much our kind of crazy here at the portal. Thus, I wanted to introduce him to our audience. As you will note, he and I disagree, but that is hardly the issue. Balaji is trying to think critically about what happens next and how this virus remakes the world. I personally tend to think Balaji might be too quick to give up on making institutions sane again, and he likely views me as stuck in the past, unable to realize how the blockchain and private enterprise will allow us to disintermediate the traditional institutions and their subversion. Suffice it to say that I think I am more correct, but that I hope that his vision is closer to accurate. And, if I'm honest, neither position is a slam dunk. I do hope you will enjoy this first uninterrupted conversation with Balaji Srinivasan, which will begin after a few brief messages from our sponsors. Returning sponsor, Four Sigmatic, everyone's favorite plucky Finnish mushroom beverage company, wishes to bring you another great moment in Finnish history. In the early 1990s, famous Finnish-American Linus Torvalds had a problem. He couldn't get the software he needed into Finland. Well, what was he to do? He sat down, according to legend, with a cup of coffee and some mushrooms fell into it. And at that moment, he had a brainwave. He would write his own open source version of Unix called Linux. And the world, my friends, has never been the same, thanks to a cup of coffee and Finnish ingenuity. So my friends, if you too want to write directly into machine code, go grab yourself some 100% Arabica coffee with lion's mane mushrooms from Four Sigmatic to clear your head. So whether you're a mushroom lover or a mushroom hater who wants to get the benefits of mushrooms, we have a special offer for the entire portal audience. You can get 15% off your Four Sigmatic purchase, but only if you go to foursigmatic.com portal. That's 15% off your Four Sigmatic purchase if you go to F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash portal or use discount code portal at checkout. foursigmatic.com slash portal. 
Returning sponsor Prasanna has been making great men's razors for almost 145 years, and I've now switched completely to Prasanna's men's five-blade razor system. Why? Because I always get a great shave. The blades are incredibly well-made, and with their pivoting head design, they can handle all of those tricky facial angles every time. Oddly, the ad copy is telling me to tell you exactly what I was thinking this morning, that the difference between my old razor and Prasanna has been night and day. Persona doesn't seem to wear out nearly as quickly as my old razor. It gives me a great shave every time. And I also didn't realize it, but I was not feeling great because my old razor company was not aligned with some of my values, choosing to lecture me when I really just want to be shaving. And I feel like Persona is doing a great job because their new blades fit on my old handle, so I don't have to change much of anything at all. So order Persona from Amazon today and get an extra 25% off your first order. That's shipped directly to your door with zero hassle. So don't wait. Go to Amazon.com slash Persona and use our discount code RAZERS25. That's Amazon.com slash P-E-R-S-O-N-N-A and use our code RAZERS25 to get 25% off your first order. Hello, you found the portal. I'm your host, Eric Weinstein, and today I get to sit down with my friend, uh, constantly inspiring mind, which is always restless, Mr. Balaji Srinivasan. Balaji, great to have you with us. Eric, great to be here. So Balaji, of course, is the former CTO of Coinbase, as well as general partner at Andreessen Horvitz, and uh, also the founder of a biotech startup that uh, I think sold for over 300 million, if I'm not incorrect. Balaji, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And uh, generally just a great uh, uncorrelated mind and spirit who has been particularly good um, getting us early information on the Corona situation. So Balaji, can you just give us a little bit of history with you and the coronavirus and how you came to be concerned about this and what you've learned in this process. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I've been uh, basically, I guess, a part-time citizen journalist on Corona for the last three months or so, four months, um, since late January, uh, you know, I was, I was going to be doing some other things this year, um, and I may still do them and, and try and fold them in or reboot them. But, um, I was, uh, basically just following the news and, um, I saw the lockdown of Wuhan on January 23rd, and uh, I realized that was a very serious um, thing uh, because actions mean louder, you know, speak louder than words, especially in China. And uh, and from that, I started digging into the biomedical literature and and uh, read everything I could get my hands on. Talked to a lot of people in China to get uh, a view on the ground, and mainly the reason that I dug into it is, um, you know like as, as an investor, you're tuned to look for things that can go, get very big from a small base, you know? And, uh, and this was the first thing that I felt like I was diligencing, um, that if it did get really big, that I would feel bad about it. Like normally you're do, doing, you know, diligence in investment and you want to hope, you hope it gets big. And this was something where I was diligence kind of trying to attack it and cut the legs out from under it. Like, you know, like what one normally would, and I couldn't, and uh, so I started tweeting about it and covering it, and uh, and that kind of brings us to the present day. Lots of things happened, obviously, to, over that period. So this is really an interesting perspective. In some sense, the virus was pitching us from Wuhan with all of those fumigations, and there were a small number of early adopters in the states who really got the virus, but for the most part, um, the herd couldn't understand what was going on, and in part 
that puts you as an early adopter because you started talking um, very early about this being a potentially worldwide disaster. Yeah, I mean, like the thing about it is, um, it's it's one of those things that had tail risk, right? Um, actually, you know, I, I was certainly by no means the only person. Like Nassim Taleb, um, you know, also had you know some writing at the same time, put put out a paper on this, uh, and and you know, if you think about tail events, right? Whether Taleb has from kind of a you know Wall Street perspective, or you know, like I have, we have from a from a tech or VC perspective. Um, Tyler Cohen has a good way of talking about this, where he calls it like a base raters versus growth growth casers, right? Um, and the base rate people essentially say, "Hey, what you're talking about has never happened before, and therefore tomorrow will be the same as today, and therefore you know you're crazy, uh, you know, like things won't change, right?" And frankly, actually, most of the time that prediction algorithm is pretty good in the same way that like predicting tomorrow's weather from today's is actually it took a while for weather prediction to to beat that, right? Um, and, uh, and then of course you've got another school of thought, which is a growth algorithm or the growth mindset where you can say, Hey, actually maybe this thing could go vertical. Um, and, and, and you try and diligence it. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, who do you, who do you think of as being early on this that had a large platform and a, and a strong voice? Early, it had a large, large platform, strong voice. Um, so, uh, I actually want to give, uh, let's see who, um, so there's folks in China, uh, like Kai Jing, uh, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, but basically, uh, there were actually some Chinese, uh, uh, news outlets that published really important stuff on the coronavirus. And it was actually censored in real time. Like I archived the links and I could see them being taken down in real time. Uh, and they had a fairly large platform in China, um, so that's kind of one group. Um, a let's see, it was uh, so I'd say Lori Garrett, who uh, uh, she had written a book on um, uh, basically you know illnesses like the I think the coming plague she had written. Um, I think um, Talib uh, is somebody. I think uh, actually Scott Alexander put together a long list of folks. Um, and you can kind of go through that list because I'm sure I'll, you know, forget somebody off the top of my head. And, um, it, you know, actually Matt Stoller, who I disagree with on, on many things, um, was, was also early on this. Uh, you know, Matt, Matt and I have, uh, I don't know, we maybe agree on 30% of things, um, maybe 40%, but we very much disagree on the rest. However, he was, he was absolutely right and early on this. Well, he's a very um, disagreeable person in general. And it seems to me like no one who lacked there was no agreeable person who got this early. You had, I think you that's had right. And that's, that's because, um, you know, the thing is, um, the term disagreeable has a pejorative connotation, right? Um, and you know, you can use it in the neutral sense of someone who will not agree for the sake of agreeing. Uh, but, it's basically something where, you know, you might, you might portray both of them as positive. There's like a consensus model and there's like a, I don't know, an independent thinking model, right. Or a first principles model. And yeah, like if you're, if you're a consensus thinker, it's, is something where they're, you know, you would just get attacked and yelled at and mocked uh, for, for saying something that was, that was quite different. Um, and, and you know what, like a lot of people who say something that's different from consensus aren't necessarily correct. 
and then you get back into the loop of, okay, how do you know whether they're correct or not? Right. But go ahead. Well, I guess I just, I, if I feel like if I actually have to refight that battle every show, I'll get nowhere. So I've just decided right. that we've won and that they're obviously <laughs> wrong because the record shows that they're obviously wrong and wrong for the same reasons every time. Like if I were to say something about the fact that um, we should really be thinking about the potential for the COVID epidemic to turn towards armed conflict and war, uh, I'll elicit the same reaction from people who aren't allowed to think that many steps ahead. It's like, well, chicken little, I don't know, you know, right. I guess the sky's falling again. And, right, right, and right. whatever that energy is, um, part of our lesson, I think, is just to ignore it, to learn that it's it's sort of, sort of an evil thing that will hurt us very badly because what we're doing is we're learning to associate the people who have the timestamps. And again, I, on this one, I don't have the timestamps. In fact, the first thing that I say on this is on February 9th, where I say, no, I don't yet have a take on the coronavirus, where I at least knew that I wasn't doing the work. I was seeing too much crazy sure. stuff. So I, I guess what I want to do is to sort of say, look, let's try to do something different. On my show, we don't have to refight the battle of disagreeability. The disagreeable people are right and the other people are wrong. Okay. What do we do now with the coexistence of these communities? Like, for example, you've seen these tech journalists who really wanted to go after the tech bros who are like preppers and, you know, the whole thing. How do we continue to manage uh, our sense-making operation in a world where the, the giant sense-making organs get things wrong and, and don't even stop to take, you know, the measure of the situation they don't catch their breath. It doesn't matter whether somebody like a Mike Cernovich was early. The point is Mike Cernovich is off the menu and whoever got it wrong and said this is a psychological problem, um, we should treat it psychologically, that person will continue to have a job at the Washington Post. Why won't this change? So um, so a few things. One is actually I think both these questions, both your, the first thing and this are related, which are... Um, there's two ways that you can diverge from the conventional wisdom. This is almost tautological, but one is you can be more correct, and the other is you can be less correct. And uh, and and the thing is, I think you know, let's call it not just on the West Coast, but there's a the disagreeable state of mind or whatever, um, you know, Talib state of mind is you diverge from the consensus because you've got a better view than the consensus. You're not consistent, right? You know, in deal formulation. Uh, and uh, we're also seeing, you know, I would say the, the uh, like QAnon type stuff and, and so on, which is non-consensus and, uh, you know, I would argue wrong um, and, and kind of crazy stuff. And, but even there, uh, you so have to be very careful because any large group of the disagreeable people finds a lot of discarded truth that the mainstream doesn't want to deal with. So even in yes. the darkest corners of the web and make them as dark as you want, they usually have a little bit of truth that they're carefully polishing because the mainstream won't deal with it. So, so this gets basically to, I think, one of my one-liners, which is the internet increases variance. And you can hover on that and you can do a lot with that statement. So for example, um, you go from 30-minute sitcoms to 30-second clips and 30-episode Netflix binges. You go from, you know, a stable nine-to-five job to gig economy on one side and, you know, a 20-year-old 
billionaire on, on the other side, right? Um, and on many different dimensions, the internet is increasing variance. It's going, you know, for example, from three television channels or, or cable news to an incredible, you know, variety of different media outlets. Every person media outlet. What's that? N. N, where N has grown arbitrarily large. Yes, yeah. N, is, N is arbitrarily large. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, in the sense, every person is now a personal media channel. And I think a big next thing is that they're going to become personal media corporations. Um, and so what, what I think is important in this world is to think about what um, decentralized truth looks like. Uh, and, you know, how do you come back to reference points that are true, even if people don't want to believe they're true. So, you know, one that I think about a lot is, you know, uh, the blockchain, right? So basically the Bitcoin blockchain, um, there's, there's actually a great book on this concept or this angle on Bitcoin that I don't think people outside the space really think about too much. It's called uh, The Truth Machine. It's by um, Paul Vigna and Michael Casey. Uh, Casey's a former Wall Street Journal uh, journalist and, and Vigna's a current WSJ journalist. Um, and so they both think about, they're actually very good. They're not haters or anything like that. They're smart um, and you can learn something from them. Um, anyway, so this book, The Truth Machine, makes a point that, um, or it, it popularizes the point that's well known within the community, that whether you're Saudi or Japanese or Brazilian, American, Norwegian, Chinese, what have you, you have the same view of the Bitcoin blockchain as everybody else. And that means the database of who has what money, everybody agrees on. Um, and that's a really important point because that's, that's a, a truth which there's an enormous literal incentive to change in the sense of if you could you know, falsify it, if you could somehow manipulate it to award yourself a billion dollars, um, you would do so or people would do so. And, uh, and so this is a really interesting example of truth in an adversarial environment where there's an enormous incentive to, um, to break it, to abuse it, but it, the, the database hasn't been corrupted because we've used technology, cryptography, other kinds of things, proof of work to make it difficult to um, fake this history, to fake this truth. And that's very powerful because I think you can extend that to other kinds of things. As traditional sources of authority are metabolized, um, people do want to have common reference points where you can cite this and the other person will have to concede it's actually true. And then you can kind of move forward from there, premise, 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 at least with a rational person. So let me pause there uh, because I think that's part of where I think we, we end up going. Well, I like that a lot. And this, this is what I talk about in terms of self-refereed games that um, in a math department, you may really dislike somebody, but if they have the better argument uh, as to who's right and who's wrong, I, I've almost never seen a, an argument go multiple days where people can't come to terms with who was correct and who was not. Um, so there are these, you know, jujitsu to, to an extent, as long as you're not talking about rule breaking, somebody's either choked you out or they haven't. And, and there are edge cases, of course, in every situation. But we have a, we have a, a coming world in which the attempt to reference things to authoritative sources is I think now going to fail. Wikipedia, which is the ultimate um, sort of top layer on top of an authoritative source model, uh, is probably going to get degraded because too many people have right privileges inside of what were previously authoritative sources. Um, so I like the idea that the blockchain is an example of how you force 
reason and uh, and rationality because it's too expensive not to participate in communal truth. Um, although I don't think it works as well for um, situations where you're not solving an arithmetic problem or something equivalent to an arithmetic problem. I mean, so. So that's so wait you're, yeah, so you're smart enough that you you added that qualifier on the end, which is somewhat something equivalent to an arithmetic problem, and and a really interesting question is how many things can be so reduced, and I think it's a a much larger set of things than people think. So once you can track you know who has what Bitcoin, you can extend the same thing to any digital form of property, right, um, which includes stocks, bonds. Um, you know, much of the world economy. It includes the passwords to who has access to what, uh, you know, website, um, who has the private keys to a device, to a car, well, we, to a house, right? Go right. Ahead. So it has to do with what, who can, you know, we can agree that a robber might have a painting, that the painting may not belong to the robber. And so when you start yep. getting into issues of fairness, as opposed to just issues of custody, and again, you know, to the same extent, when you have something that might or might not be equivalent to arithmetic, one thing that you find that's very interesting is watching the number of bets that don't complete, where two people start off acting like they've got a really serious disagreement, and then they, somebody says, well, let's, let's settle it with a wager. And then yeah. you watch as the state, statement gets sharpened, you realize that the two people never really had a disagreement because they can't come to an agreement as to what the bet should be because, quite frankly, they both have the same underlying model of reality, but they wanted to put a different sort of emotive layer on top of it. Yes. I think it's, it's also interesting because in the formulation of a bet, um, each participant immediately with the prospect of loss starts hedging, right? And, and, and that's rational to do in the sense of, you know, if you think some metric is going to hit 80%, well, you take the bet if you think it's, if someone says it's only going to hit 10%, right? There's a sort of a tug of war on it and people want to give themselves more margin, right? Um, but actually, Tyler Cohen a while back tweeted, or maybe it was Tabarrok, uh, he posted something about how betting reduces partisanship. That is to say, it is, um, you know, capitalism is the opposite to tribalism, where it, uh, you know, the, the prospect of individual gain and loss means it, there's an incentive to give a non-consensus answer. Now, by the way, I want to return to your point about, you know, sources of authoritative truth melting down, you know, like the center cannot hold and metabolizing. I think uh, I have, I think there's at least five replacements for universal authoritative truth. Um, the first is most obvious, which is tribal truth. You know, like it's true because your chieftain says it's true. And we see that a lot, right? So that actually kind of rebuilds authoritative truth. It's just not universal truth. It's what your group leader is saying, right? So that's a big thing on social media. Um, a second is iterative truth. Uh, so the next three I'm going to talk about come from, I think, tech. So iterative truth of the GitHub sense, where rather than put out a story and say it's capital T true, you know, like the New York Times literally, the New York Times markets itself as essentially infallible neutral truth. Right. And, uh, you know, like it runs that ad campaign saying the truth isn't easy. The truth isn't this and the truth isn't that. Right. Um, and they published a fair number of just the flu, you know, pieces, by the way, you know, and then recently they're like, you know, the truth is it's not just the flu. And I, I just kind of laughed when I saw that. Right. So um, an alternative to saying the article is true and how dare you question it 
is uh, the Git or GitHub model where you put out some code and you know it's going to have bugs. And, you know, whereas in an East Coast model or an academic model, a retraction or a correction is this huge black mark, right, that people will fight tooth and nail to avoid, right, as, as you're aware, you know, folks will try to avoid that in academia, they try to avoid that in journalism, a correction is like, ooh, you know, and it's like, you know, oh man, it's a humiliation for them, right? Um, by contrast, a pull request, you know, a, somebody who files a bug, uh, you know, an active project will have edits and it will have issues and bugs and pull requests. There's nobody who's ever in software who will pretend to say, oh, my code is always right and it has no bugs, right? Um, in fact, the whole thing is set up recognizing that it's fallible and iterative. And so that's the second model of iterative truth, okay? It works well in the West Coast model, the GitHub model. And that's yeah, 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 except the problem is, is that um, the... In the GitHub model, you have individual coders who are submitting code, and there is this concept of just a very basic level, um, whether or not the code should or should not run, does it run? Will it compile? And a lot yep. of what we see in, uh, and I guess the first thing you had was tribal truth, which I don't even want to call tribal truth. Maybe it's tribal strategy. It's like, don't, don't contradict the quarterback we're trying to win a game here, you know, whether the quarterback is right or wrong, the quarterback is running the show. And so this could be like, well, the democratic party has chosen Joe Biden and our, our associated organs are behind him. What are you doing? Questioning Tara Reid and the fact that he's 77 years old. Like that's, that's a particular kind of a, an issue, which is you're going to break down the coherence of the system. I guess what, where I'm, I'm really driving with all of this, Balaji, is I saw this with 2008, and I saw it with Nassim, uh, of all people, which is when it was clear that the world had gotten this wrong and that a tiny number of people had gotten it right, we did not promote those tiny number of people appropriately. So one of the things I find interesting in this situation, I'm just going to repeat myself, uh, one of the things I find interesting in the situation is I went through this a little bit with Nassim Taleb in 2008. And, um, you know, he was getting it right. And there was a small group of us who were very alarmed about the state of, um, of finance and the risks that were being uh, swept under the rug, uh, in particular through well-established metrics like value at risk. And what we found was is that the people who had been the big critics didn't become super prominent establishment figures. The establishment would rather deal with the failed people who screwed everything up a second time, a third time, a fourth time, because it's really not about us improving as a society. It's about the fact that it's hard to profit um, in, in stagnant times if you're not getting things wrong. Like get, getting things wrong is actually valuable if what you're doing is transferring money between parties. So for example, when you print money, you can talk about it in terms of stimulus, much needed stimulus. We've, we're determined to put in a floor in the market, restore confidence. All of that is language for transferring wealth. And we don't hear it as wealth transfers. And to your point about Bitcoin, um, what happens when I have a, a group of people who can transfer wealth by using a printing press and they talk only in terms that are so abstract as to be lifeless, bloodless, meaningless. Yeah. Well, so I, so I, I think two or three things I want to 
respond to there, which are, um, one is we can actually um, invert the, so, you know, there's, there's a, a line of argument, which I'm sympathetic to, which says um, folks who are criticizing um, aren't building uh, or rather, you know, if you're criticizing the man in the arena, it's always harder if you're the man in the arena, et cetera, right? And um, the answer to them you want just, is- That's a reference to Teddy Roosevelt's famous speech, if you don't know- Exactly, what that's right, that's right. So, you know, the, the answer to critics is actually pretty easy, which is, okay, go start your own company, right? Because the barrier to starting your own company is actually very low. You can just go out and incorporate it. And um, so I think that's a good response to the person who says, oh, I could do so-and-so better than so-and-so CEO or whatever. Like, you know, some people are really could. Some of those critics are actually talented people um, and uh, and they could do better if they, they were in, but you'll only know for sure if you actually go and make the leap. Like many, many of us in, in tech, for example, are former academics who, you know, may have grown up as critics uh, until you put yourself in the driver's seat. And then you have to actually be both, by the way, as CEO or as a senior executive, you have to both be a big booster of, you know, the company and the vision and so on and so forth and your own harshest critic and write detailed reviews of, hey, we should have done X rather than Y, that kind of thing, right? Um, so applying that to this, the fundamental question is how do we exit these institutions and build alternatives? Um, we can start a new company, but how can we start, for example, um, you know, a new FDA or equivalent, right? How can we uh, start a new city? How can we eventually start a new country? Those are, you know, how do we start a new currency? Well, that one we've actually made some progress on, right? And uh, so, so then, you know, once you start a new currency, you know, if you notice the energy out of like the anti-Fed stuff, it's like Bitcoiners are laughing, right? They're not like mad anymore. And uh, the reason they're they're not mad is they they have the exit. If they're right, they've got a bet, which is very divergent from where um, you know Bernanke and, and Co uh, were, and where you know the current Fed is, right? They got a bet that's very divergent, and um, and they'll they'll do well in the event that you know they're correct, and they've been correct for the last you know at least a thousand x or ten thousand x up, right? So I think that's a real question: is not so much how to get the critics into power within legacy institutions, but to empower them to build new institutions um, without too much interference from the legacy establishment. Well, this uh, is, so go ahead. This is where you and I obviously disagree. Uh, for those of you who are actually watching this rather than listening to this, Balaji looks like he's got a tremendous amount of money. He showed up with practically a hoodie, uh, unshaved. I'm still clearly trying to please my boss by wearing a, a, a jacket and shirt ridiculously <laughs> indoors during quarantine. Okay. I, yeah, I disagree with this. I think that this is part of the West Coast fantasy that we can just do everything from our garages and we can neglect the legacy stuff. And, and as you know, with something like Bitcoin, um, you know, if you think about gold, the dollar and Bitcoin, let's say, as three example currencies, one of them is backed by violence, the dollar. One of them is backed by quantum chromodynamics, gold. And one of them is backed by elliptic curves or you know, equivalent er or, you know, mathematics. Um, and so something backed by violence can choose to disagree with you in a very different way. Could, you could just make it very dangerous to hold Bitcoin. Um, so there are all sorts of weird ways in which 
I don't think that this is played out. We don't really know how government's legacy structures will interact with new structures. I do believe in, in uh, not the WHO, but the WHO, when they say meet the new boss, same as the old boss, <laughs> we will have definite problems that will be, uh, Bitcoin isn't going to get us out of all of our human stuff. It'll get us out of some of it. Um, but I guess what, what, what concerns me is, is that all the West Coast people are so sick of the East Coast stuff. Again, letting West and East stand for something that we can sure. kind of understand. Sure, metonyms. Right. Um, well, as metonyms, I would say that the West Coast just says, I don't want to deal with that East Coast stuff. It's boring. It, it kills all the fun. All profit is lost. It's so consensus-driven, hierarchical, credential-focused effort. And as a result, I feel like what's happened is that we've abandoned um, any hold that we might have in, let's say, the National Academy of Sciences or the great universities. And we're not really creating these things anew. We're still feeding. I mean, if I could just put one horrible spin on it, Burning Man is like a blast for one week a year, and it makes fun of the default world. But all of the riches that are needed to run Burning Man are amassed in the default world and then plowed as treasure into this giant weird celebration for one week. And I feel like the rest of us are in some weird ways partially parasitic on the very institutions that we've allowed to be taken over. So so let me, let me give something to this argument because I've actually um, been thinking about it more over the last few months in particular which is, um, you know, from the standpoint of Corona, part of the reason that we're in the COVID-19 crisis, maybe the, the biggest part of the reason is that, you know, we, we just don't have people with scientific and engineering backgrounds in the press or the state for the most part. You know, we have lawyers, we have, you know, liberal arts majors, we have accomplished character assassins, <laughs> but we, we don't really have too many people who know math or, or computer science, or in this case, virology, bioinformatics, genomics, et cetera. You've, right? you've looked at the advanced right? degrees in Congress on Wikipedia? It's all JDs, right? It's it's beyond pathetic. I mean, it just the idea that you would expect that the next president of the United States should be able to write a few lines of code. I, I just, I, we're just drawing from the complete wrong pools of people. Right. And the thing about this is it just to show it doesn't have to be that way. Here's where let me give let me do a few different riffs on exit in this context, right? So one way one one version of it is look at other countries, right? Um like look at something that's different in space. Uh and so you can look at Lee Shenlong, who's the Prime Minister of Singapore. And you know, he was uh, as you may know, like uh, the, the senior wrangler at Cambridge, so like an actual research mathematician caliber person in terms of IQ, but also could really execute. You know, he posted a Sudoku solver, for example, on his, uh, well, he could execute as prime minister. He's also very, still very sharp. He posted a Sudoku solver on his uh, Facebook page in C++ and, and knew, you know, two's complement and relatively obscure binary bit flipping type stuff, right? And uh, there's, you know, other folks like uh, Tomas Ilves, who was the uh, president, I believe, of Estonia. Um, he was actually a critical figure that helped make Estonia, you know, E-Estonia, like an internet, you know, based country, right? Um, and uh, I think he was a Princeton Princeton graduate and was familiar. And basically, he was kind of like a, a Bitcoin proponent in 2020 who was starting helping start a new country. It's because he was next to the Estonian heads of state that he could he could do that. 
Um, so those are some examples of it doesn't have to be that way. You know, you have heads of state who are do have some technical skill. But so I, I definitely want to give something to your argument, um, which I agree with, uh, which is that we cannot completely neglect. And so then how do we reconcile those, you know, take that thesis antithesis and, and come to a synthesis? Um, something I think about a lot is like a kitty corner strategy. For example, Google, um, you know, went and built up its wealth initially in search. And after it had built a uh, cash cow in search, then and only then did it decide to take on Microsoft on its home turf with, you know, uh, first Gmail, you know, and then um, Google Docs and Sheets and, and so on. And that was a huge, I mean, that, that battle is still being waged today, right? Like that would not have been the smart first thing for Google to do. Um, they had to build up kind of their own thing first or cash cow before they went and engaged more competitive markets. So, um, so that's one option. I mean, there's something kind of ha like that happened with the United States as well. You know, it exited Europe in, seven, you know, like actually not 1776, in the 1600s and 1700s, uh, eventually declared independence, fully exited. And then over 140 years, essentially built its strength, had its own problems. Um, and then, you know, by 1945, uh, was stronger than almost every European country, right? And kind of came back in. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that's an ex a second example of kitty corner. You go to a diagonal, you win in that diagonal, you build your strength there, and then you come back. And, uh, you know, today in, with, the, um, with what's, what's happened, I, I think of, um, you know, of course you know this, but maybe not all of your audience knows this. Uh, Founders Fund has this, uh, you know, funny one-liner, which is, um, we wanted flying cars and said we got 140 characters, right? And, uh, you know, meaning, you know, where's the innovation of the future? We just have this messaging service and so on. But I have a feeling that um, social media and cryptocurrency are going to actually be the way that we do get that future. And uh, the reason is I think of them respectively as American glasnost being social media and American perestroika being cryptocurrency. Um, now, should I explain that for your viewers or you want to you want to take it from there? Have you, have you thought about no, that? No, no, you can you can do that. Although I. Okay. I, I, I am worried that right now we're in the COVID epi epidemic. And I think, you know, I, of course, I find cryptocurrency fascinating. I do think it's more speculative because of the different ways in which, you know, look, obviously you've been, you've been very early on COVID. You've been early on Bitcoin and a major proponent in all things blockchain. The, the, the concern that I have, Balaji, is that I don't know how I don't know how to reformat this conversation. Like I know how to have this boring conversation with the East Coast. And I know how to have the wild-eyed conversation with the West Coast. But sure. The thing that I'm looking to have is a conversation that doesn't really sound like either one of those two. Um Sure. And it has to do with the following thing. Uh Okay, so imagine that you've got like more or less these two bad families, the Clintons and the Bushes. Okay? And you know, it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys and and then maybe they're more similar to each other than than we know and you know, of course, Barack Obama is somehow attached to the Clinton family, whatever. But it's like it's a little rich that we're going to take this most powerful of nations with all of its great universities, all of its culture and in the space of like 20 or 30 years, we're just going to screw the whole thing up so much that we're talking about 
like moving onto the blockchain. And uh, we're going to just, you know, hey, hey, let the legacy institutions die. We, we've outgrown the New York Times. We've outgrown Harvard. We've outgrown political parties and countries. We, we should just be the, you know, electronic states of America. And it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We, we, we skipped a bunch of steps here, you know, at some level. We've got a really bad economic problem. And then we've got two, what I view as relatively non-productive strategies. Either continue go to go with the Bush-Clinton stupidity, now represented by Biden and, 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 you know, weirdly Trump, who obviously is, you know, not really coming out of the Republican Party. But it's, all of this is like a reaction to how sick people are of the kleptocracy, you know, this geriatric kleptocracy. And then, you know, the, the other option is, well, let's make ourselves into a really large version of Estonia because Lord knows they've been forward thinking. And I guess I have the sense of, is there no one to have a more integrated conversation with? So, yeah, I mean, I, I actually do think, um, I think my point of view maybe is more integrated in the sense of, for example, I believe in recentralization. I believe all progress happens along the Z axis. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, you, you know, if, if you visualize like a clock, you know, you start a company and it's like one, one minute after midnight, you know, you're starting it as a solo person and, and many people will die, you know, the company will die, you know, on, on, you know, before you get to the next milestone. But if you start making revenue, okay, um, more people join around 3 p.m. You go from just one person on the tundra to like a lean two with a few people. Then you start getting around to like six o'clock. Now you've got like a whole group of folks and something crucial happens at this time, which is your most important number goes from your, um, your burn rate to your bus number. It goes from basically every single person has to be indispensable to every single person must be dispensable. Because in the first stage where you're coming up to product market fit and so on, you know, you need just these absolutely exceptional, unique, iconoclastic, crazy people. But then once you've built a machine where you need to scale it, actually you don't want iconoclastic people or, or at least you have to be careful about it since you need something where you can add 30 more engineers and get X more result, right? Like it has to be more kind of, you know, you put in people and you, you get a result, right? Um, and, and so then you, you're led to, you know, or you put in, you know, customer service reps, you put in, um, you know, drivers, if it's Uber, you know, you, you, have, you have some model that works like that. And so then you get to a totally different thing where now you're talking about bus number and uh, meaning how many people can get hit by a bus before, uh, you know, the, the, the system no longer works. And the bus number way of thinking about things starts making you think about folks as quote replaceable, uh, because if, if not, then you wouldn't be doing your job. If, if you had a company of, you know, 400 people and 300 of them were essential and they quit and your company would go to zero, you wouldn't be doing your job as CEO. It literally, it's like required to make them redundant in not in a bad sense, but redundant in the sense of if one of them goes down, the whole company doesn't go down. You're making the thing anti-fragile in, in, in talent sense. But then this is taken almost always too far to the point that people do feel like cogs. They, they feel the redundancy, they feel the, you know, de-skilling, uh, they feel the bureaucracy creeping up where the bureaucracy is basically a substitute. Bureaucracy is not always bad. Bureaucracy at its best is a substitute for the thought process of a very talented executive or, or CEO. Like 
Bezos implements a process and rather than him being there to manage that process every step of the way, he writes down instructions and people follow that. That's actually a functional bureaucracy where it's like writing or, or code that scales a, a human being's judgment in such a way that it can scale across other human beings who don't maybe have the same level of judgment. Um, that's why you have written policies and procedures. There's consistency. You know, customers get the same experience. Then, of course, what happens is around nine past, you know, the hour, uh, you start going into the degeneration mode and the bureaucracy stifles individual initiative to such a point that someone leaves to start their own company and now it's 1201 again, right? And that's the cycle that happens. And that's, you know, I'm not saying it's exactly someone leaving from A to, to start B, but that's IBM to Microsoft to Google to Facebook to then what's next, right? And, and I'm not saying that, you know, a guy from IBM left Starbucks, I am never saying that, Progress happens along the z-axis. If you think about this clock as turning, right? Um, but each turn, it's like ascending a, a helix where it kind of goes now up. You're starting right? to sound like Ken um, Wilbur in Spiral yeah. Dynamics, but I, I don't know him. Uh, but but so so this is just my mental model where it might seem circular that you know the quote, the libertarian founder rebuilds the state. Right. 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 You know, because you, you start a company to get away from you know control and bureaucracy and so on, and then you find that. You have to actually rebuild it to scale the company, right? It's kind of a deep insight. Yeah, so I, I like the helical model. Um, effectively, you know, the, the premise of the portal is to find the way out of Flatland. And if you're born hmm. into Flatland, how do you learn about the Z-axis? And so the typical example that we like to give is that the square root of negative one is the question that can be posed in Flatland that is on the real line, but forces you to invent the imaginary access to solve it. So what's the problem? That in you fact, can... one over one plus X squared is a great example of a function that, you know, it's defined everywhere along the real line, but the power series doesn't converge at, you know, plus one and minus one because there's poles at I and negative I. So you can't even understand flatland unless you understand. You it's know, context. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I like all that. But biology, look, one of the things that I want to get to is that I, I really enjoy our conversations. Um, I find you to be one of the most generative people that I speak to uh, just across many topics. I, I don't think you could possibly be right about everything that you're talking about because you have so many interesting different opinions on so many things that it, it sort of statistically doesn't seem uh, uh, likely, but it's always like one of the most interesting perspectives in the room. It always gets me thinking. Uh, I want to get back a little bit to the virus, and I'll, I'll have you back one one or more times after this to talk about whatever you want to do. Sure. But I want to get to a little bit about what I think you're doing essentially right now. Sure. Where the hell are we? It doesn't. I, mean, I don't know how to say this to people, but this virus and it's our response to it is so bad that it's it's particularly crashing my operating system. I can't believe how lousy the explanations are, how completely willing people are to talk about flattening the curve uh, or social distancing or when the vaccines will be ready. And like all of this strikes me as the kind of nonsense speak that I saw around the financial crisis where you get people to parrot whatever the phrase is that's repeated on television as if they understand it. Um, I'm feeling like my IQ has plummeted to low two figures. What's going wrong with me? Why am I not functioning well with the explanations that are being given? And how is it that you're functioning better? And I, I'm legitimately not doing this to compliment you. I'm saying I can't believe 
how badly I'm doing understanding this because I keep wanting to make contact with some grown-up in some official position who makes sense, and I can't find a one. Well, I think uh, so. First, um, you know, thank you for I, I think I think the kind words. Uh, the uh, but uh, and um, but but I'll tell you I'll tell you at least my mental model. I, I I wouldn't say that you're doing badly or I'm doing well or anything like that. But at least my mental model on this. Um, In an interesting sense, the world has actually receded such that we um, we know what we don't, or not everybody, but let's say smart people like yourself increasingly know what they don't know. And here's what I mean by that. So in one sense, the world has receded physically, where lots of people are now literally sitting in their rooms, right? They can't travel around the world and, and you know, or even to their office or what have you, right? Um, but the second way in the world has receded is... Most of what we know about the world is mediated, right? You're a research scientist. Um, I'm sure some of the folks listening are. Um, and so you have discovered facts that are true uh, of your own accord in, in you know, some discipline, right? You write a PhD thesis or what have you, you know, or even just do any kind of research. It's kind of like that. Many people, this is what I call kind of like a pre-headline person. Um, a pre-headline person, as opposed to a post-headline person, a pre-headline person is like a research scientist or a founder, or a journalist, um, or a politician, someone who has known uh, about the facts, known something to be true prior to it being printed in a newspaper. And uh, it, that seems like a very small thing, but it's actually a big thing, because it means that those people are responsible for discovering and disseminating new facts, right? Whereas a post-headline person will not believe something until it's actually printed in a, in a newspaper that they trust. Um, your personal, you know, kind of statement to them that, hey, X is true, uh, you know, they won't necessarily listen to it unless they believe in your authority from some other thing, some other institutional position. Okay. So, so in many senses, our domain has shrunken both physically because we're in our rooms and mentally because all of these nodes who we trusted to give us information um, about things, we're realizing that those folks messed up. And so, you know, the signal they're giving today, well, yesterday they were basically saying, oh, this thing is nothing to worry about. It's just the flu. Um, you know, don't wear a mask. Now you have to wear a mask. Like these contradictions are so obvious and coming so quickly that we are forced to realize that those folks are extremely fallible human beings and not oracles. You know, it's not the institution said, it's not the New York Times said or the Washington Post said, it's this guy said, you know, or this girl said, you know, this person said, right? And um, so, so I think that's, you know, the first step, as Saul Alinsky would say, you know, if the first step is in community organization is disorganization, um, I think the first step in understanding is not understanding, having it all be a jumble, right? And at least what I'm doing is I'm leaning on, you know, you have training in, in physics. I know, I know something of physics, you know, uh, certainly I'm, I'm not going down to elementary particle level, but um, I do know uh, genomics and I know bioinformatics and I know diagnostics and I know how to read biomedical papers. So, uh, you know, that's also mediated, of course, but it doesn't make the pretense, it doesn't, it doesn't have the pretense of being capital T truth. It's here are some researchers, we put out something, we believe it to be true, and you can contest it. Within the domain, you can. It's legitimate to contest it, you know, in, a, in, in biomedical research. And so leaning on those, uh, you know, that, that gives me some information, maybe more, maybe, maybe orients it. I would also say from two other standpoints, um, 
as part of the earlier part of our conversation, I think uh, discipline wise, or, or I don't know, I'm sure you call it mentally or dispositionally rather, that's, that might be better. Uh, from, a, from a dispositional standpoint, I expect authority to fail. <laughs> and I, 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 I already knew the state was going to fail. The extent to which it failed is kind of interesting, but like the, ma- the, the direction and magnitude was not a thousand X off from what I expected. Um, I think that for those who did not expect that uh, or who found it to be a thousand X off, go ahead. I expect institutional failure. I, I think about it all the time. I talk about it all the time. The magnitude of this institutional failure caught me by surprise. And that's fair. That's fair. I don't want to say, you know, like this is something where the the permanent bureaucracy failed, FDA, CDC, international organizations like WHO failed, the elected government failed, the unelected government, meaning the career bureaucrats, you know, they failed, uh, state and local, you know, the, the mayor of New York, you know, like, et cetera, um, and legacy press failed. And, and the military, frankly, has failed. Like the only thing, you know, I was tweeting about this, but basically by defense since anthrax was something that billions of dollars has been allocated for. Why can't I talk pandemic, about yeah. the Wuhan lab? You, well, so that's actually now come back within, I'd say the, the somewhat mainstream um, to discuss. Um, oh, oh, sorry. I can talk about it again. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Like, like, so, so uh, with the Wuhan lab, um, just to touch on that for a second, uh, you know, it is certainly the case. Let's say we've got two hypotheses, or I mean, there's, there could be K hypotheses, frankly, and you want to distinguish between them, right? Um, it is certainly the case that there have been deadly natural viruses uh, and, and infectious diseases in general that have arisen before the age. Look, of Look, I can violence, see where you're right? going. I don't. Yeah. I don't want to do it that way. Let me. Let me phrase. Well, it. So, okay, no, no, no. Okay. Let me phrase so, so, it because I. I don't want to waste time showing that we're not crazy people. Obviously, we're not crazy people. No, it's a, <laughs> sure, tax, sure, sure. It's a tax that I don't want to pay, Balaji. That's the thing, is I don't want to pay well, the listen. tax of saying, well, of course, you know, nobody's saying X, nobody's saying Y. By the time we get done with the recitations of what nobody's saying, you know, our time will be over. So I, I, I guess by my nature, when I have the time to do it, I... I like to be I, I like to be precise in those in the statements that I feel that there's uncertainty about, right? So let me give the other side of it. Why is it I think it's plausible that it was naturally occurring. I also think it is plausible or certainly not impossible that um you know the the, the there's a there's a scientist Zengli Shi who works in Wuhan who had co-authored papers by uh with with a guy named Ralph Barrick who, uh, which were on gain-of-function research in coronaviruses. This is a North Carolina lab head. That's right. Uh, And and by the way, I'm not like attacking this person or anything like that. I'm just saying that it was published research that is on essentially making... Can we we just not spend the time saying what we're not saying? I know, I know. But but I just want to say that like, you know... uh, let me asterisk that, okay? So, yeah, so there's a giant asterisk. Balaji is a smart guy. He's asterisk. not saying any of the stupid stuff <laughs> okay. you're going to try to ascribe to him. Like it was definitely sure, sure, a sure. synthetically engineered bioweapon let loose by a rogue fashion of the Chinese Communist Party. Like, yes, he's not saying any stupid thing. I don't want to waste our time on this. Sure, 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 sure. So, 
so what do I think? But but I think it is just given the context, though. I think it's important to be precise about what it, what I think it could have been. I think it could have been that um, you know because SARS hit China in two thousand three, that folks were studying SARS viruses or SARS related viruses, um, and uh, something got out on someone's shoe. That's very possible. Where you know you you were doing experiments. I mean, the, there's a there's a coronavirus from bats in Yunnan province that's published on GenBank that has 96% sequence homology to uh, the the SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 coronavirus. The horseshoe bat um, stuff from some cave. Yeah. However, however, the, there there are later pangolin-derived sequences that were published that have even higher homology, uh, and. Um, in theory, so one of the things I always think about in, in this is, what do I know to be true for sure? And what can I go and check for myself if I was willing to spend enough time and money, right? And in theory, okay, if you had somebody on the ground in China, China's a big place, there's going to be somebody who you could uh, collaborate with or pay or what have you to go and um, capture some, I mean, I'm not sure too many people would want to do this, okay, but they, they could you know, go and capture some bats or pangolins with whatever local regulations there are around that and sequence them, right? That is a that is a conceivable experiment you could do, but right? This, this is not and an answer to could, the question. No, no. So it, it does. It does. Because what you want to do is you want P of Y given X, right? Or P of H given D, right? Probability of hypothesis given data. And... Um, the thing, for example, like I was thinking about what could falsify or, or prove. Uh, Baji, you know, you're going down a different path. Like my question is different. My question is, there is no way that the Wuhan lab should be discounted at this point. We don't have enough information to suggest that no one should bring up the Wuhan lab because of concerns about racism or concerns about. Oh, yeah. Well, that, so. That, so that, 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 so, this so, so, is, this right, is so, where so I'm having a different is, issue, which is I didn't, I didn't, I'm not trying to tell you what the probability is. I'm not trying to say where it originated. I'm not trying to say what I think and don't think. I get very nervous when somebody removes one of the choices and says, don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? right. And so the, the, the issue that I'm having is that's bad scientifically. When somebody says, well, only bad people think that the Wuhan lab might be involved. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Something broke down because that should be a live hypothesis and it shouldn't carry stigma. If you're saying, well, definitely, you know, it's, it's the Chinese are just trying to get us, you know, and they're trying to take our stuff. That, that would be stupid. But saying, hey, we've got a pretty significant lab doing research pretty closely related to this topic. And it could right. be anything from an accident to somebody was trying to grow, um, Let's imagine trying to grow coronavirus, you know, bat coronavirus tissue in human lungs, and cadaver tissue. You don't know, and it's not a question. So of, let me let not, me give an ask. Uh, wait, wait, let, let, let me just finish this. it. Finish so, off. Go, go, okay, okay, go ahead. Sorry. And the instant you start talking about this, you get these really weird comebacks, which is like, uh, I don't think anybody smart thinks that this was engineered from first principles in a lab and released as a bioweapon. and you're saying well yeah nobody said that so why is it that that's what you're responding to like you, you right. can feel that there's a force field around the issue of 
is there more significant Chinese responsibility in falsifying data, controlling the WHO, disguising the origins that they know about this virus? And why are we participating in something to aid China? I don't understand. Why, why is the U.S. leadership so courteous to these people, the Chinese Communist so, Party? Well, okay. So, so, so I, I think there's there's a few interlocking things there. Um, the first is, you know, should a legitimate scientific hypothesis be shamed out of public debate? I don't think so. Um, the second is, uh, and this is this is somewhat difficult, but let me see if I can get there. Uh, you know, you've graded math exams, you've graded physics exams, almost certainly, right? If if somebody gets the right answer and they just circle it at the bottom, but they don't show their work, or they get the right answer and they just put pi down there or whatever, and it just happens to be right, but their all their steps are wrong, right? Um, then that usually doesn't get credit, right? And I think there were a number of folks, at least in January, who were throwing around things like, "Oh, it's like an HIV-infused, you know, sequence," and so, and uh, and because of that, because those were just kind of that, that's like being in the direction of it coming from a lab, though it's not the same as it. Uh, but it was just like noise and dumb and bad and, uh, and, and wrong because like, basically if you went and looked at these sequences in, in blast, uh, which is, which is like a, like Google for DNA sequences or RNA or protein sequences, right? You look at it in blast and you could see actually, no, it wasn't similar to HIV sequences at all. That was, that was a spurious kind of uh, assertion. Right. And, and so I think it is in the presence of that noise, that chaff, that is incumbent upon those who are correct to look like signal, not just be signal, but look like it, you know, like the whole thing about Caesar's wife and, and so on, right? Um, so that's why I try to be careful. The more controversial it is, the more it could I understand be the, misunderstood. I understand yeah. the impulse to being careful. That's not right. what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, and this is, this is really hard on me. In essence, the way I'm seeing this is, is that I'm trying to stand up for a missing position. Once upon a time, we had top people, professors, you know, people who would be virologists, who would get up and they would say something approximating the truth. You know, like, we can't know this. These are the available hypotheses based on this information. I'm leaning this way. We can't rule anything out. Here we don't have that. We've got this very different sort of a thing, which is what's confusing me. Which is I'm so, not I'm not used uh, to the Surgeon General sounding like a goddamn moron. <laughs> you know, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not used right. to reporters. I like, you know, I was just watching this old vid video of Richard Threlkel uh, in in, v in the Vietnam jungle getting shot at with his the platoon he was covering. You know, and like my old notion of reporters is that they're fairly heroic, and my new notion is is that they just don't that they sometimes hate the people they're covering so much that they don't pay attention to reality. They just try to contradict whatever it is that they hate. They're jealous of powerful people in yep. politics. They're jealous of rich people in San Francisco. They're jealous of beautiful people, you know, somewhere else. And so it's just like, okay, fine. Let's just trash people. That's my job. So I wasn't used to the idea that I couldn't turn to the surgeon general and say, stop lying to me or, 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 or you know, this is going to come out on YouTube. And now I've got a problem. I'm building a channel on YouTube. And the CEO of YouTube says, we won't allow 
videos that contradict the WHO. And my jaw is on the floor. Like, are, are you an American? Or, 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 who are you? And, and do, do we just have to nationalize YouTube? Do we have to? So, so that's exactly the wrong approach, by the way. No, because you're going is... to say blockchain. We just put well, it on the blockchain. Well, hold on. Dude. I'm not, I'm not just going to say it for a... Uh, let me explain why. The issue is um, the entire impulse that YouTube has there in terms of let's give in to the centralized political authority because it's the only one we have is the same one that says, oh, nationalizing will make it better. No, it's going to make it worse. It's going to just basically make it political truth again, right? Um, even worse now, because now it's like the national outlet of this. It basically becomes like the Chinese state controlled media. Apology, uh, it's not like I and, disagree uh, with you in the sense that I'm trying to say, I'm standing up for a position. Like what you're saying, there are three versions of crazy here, and I want to talk about all three of them. Yep. There's Balaji crazy, where <laughs> the idea is that we all move our lives onto the blockchain. And uh, so that's uh, a caricature. I want to come I'm back carica to that. I'm caricature caricaturing all three of them. Sure. Okay. okay? okay. So I'm not being fair to any one of us, and I will be merciless to my, myself. Okay. So the Balaji version of craziness is, hey, don't you understand? We can all retreat into our garages. We can have sex with tardigrades and we can uh, form government on the blockchain. And as long as we take enough nootropics, uh, everything's going to be awesome. Okay. That's the California version. And you, you are being saddled with that. Then there's the Eric version, which is equally, if not more embarrassing. Hey, I once saw some functional institutions when I was growing up, even though that they've all since been allowed to fall into disrepair and we have lunatics heading all of them. I still think that we can get things back together so that we can trust the CDC and the Surgeon General. And uh, if we can only get our people in office, and by the way, we're running, running Biden against Trump, a 74-year-old versus a 77-year-old, which is completely insane. But nevertheless, in 2028, everything will be fine. Then there's like the establishment position, which is like, okay, we're wrong every four seconds. We contradict ourselves constantly. Everyone can see that we're lying more or less 24-7, but hey, you're all still forced to pay attention because these institutions still matter because ultimately it's all backed by guns, okay? So we've got one guy backed by the blockchain, one guy backed by nostalgia, and one guy backed by, uh, you know, firearms. So the first one is exit exit the system. The second is fix the system. And the third is the system isn't broke, right? Now, I think there's uh, a synthesis of these, which is um, there are certain aspects of the system that people will need to reinvent. Uh, the system does need to be fixed, but it can't be fixed in a down the middle way. That's too fortified a route. You have to go kitty corner. You need a creative approach that is different, right? And I'll give several examples of reform that has happened by going kitty corner, right? And you know what I mean by kitty corner, going to a diagonal rather than straight ahead, okay? So one was the example I mentioned where Google went and made money in search, and then it went and attacked Microsoft, right? Um, the biggest example, you know, that's like civilizational example that we've had recently is the internet opening up and giving a, us this digital frontier where you could build without a license, you know, and that, that metaphor becomes more than a metaphor when you talk about not just Minecraft, but VR and so on. Like that do that domain name where you can build and you have complete authority to do so is the opposite of what happens in the offline world where you cannot build without a permit and without a this and without a that, right? Um, and the this reopening of the frontier is this metagame 
which um, has sucked a lot of talent out of DC because now there's an option, you know, to go into tech, not just DC, but uh, pulled pulled talent out of academia and out of journalism and out of even Hollywood, frankly. Boston, uh, New York, into... and Washington, DC. It's a good. Exactly. That's right. That's right. And so in a sense, the fact that the frontier exists and that people have moved to this digital frontier has in turn weakened legacy institutions. So it's kind of this, you know, double whammy, a minus one for them and a plus one for, for the frontier. Um, and, you know, another third example is, you know, cryptocurrency, right? Rather than Satoshi going down the middle and trying to get a meeting with the IMF or the World Bank to say, hey, let's start a new currency, you know, one that you can't print. You know, had he done the down the middle kind of thing, he, he, first, he probably wouldn't have gotten the meeting. And had he gotten the meeting, he would have been laughed out of the room, right? And so a new You, you know that I tried to needed. get prime brokerage for Bitcoin in 2010. Wow, really? Okay. So you were ahead of the curve. Well, yeah, but, but I'm I stu- sure I stu- we couldn't get anyone to take it seriously. So it's not like I bought a hard drive and just loaded it up with Bitcoin. Exactly. That's right. So this is also related. I mean, there's so many other examples of this. You know, for example, in 2020, um, Google and Apple and so on, they still don't have TV channels, but they do have Apple TV and YouTube and iTunes and you know so on, right? It was literally easier to build and scale the internet and get it to people's houses than it was for them to go and wrestle with, you know, television company, you know, like the the entire licensing complex around television, right? And so I think that is, yet the reform happened, right? It just wasn't, you you didn't attack the Maginot line head on, you know? You recognize it was a Maginot line and you figured out how to go around, yeah? Now. Uh, if the flip side of this, to, to bring up the Maginot line point in a different way, when you talk about how you've been like amazed by like what's happened in the U.S., unfortunately, and and you know this is this is actually something I do not think most people have realized, uh, America has been invaded and defeated by the coronavirus, and that is the first successful invasion of America in modern times, I think like the war of 1812 is like the last time, you know, the British burned the white house, like serious, you know, kind of foreign damage on American soil. I mean, obviously there's Pearl Harbor, right. But like, um, the continental United States has been so safe for so long that there has never been like a foreign occupier. And, uh, you know, what, what happened is this virus basically bypassed the Atlantic and the Pacific It bypassed the nuclear umbrella and all the aircraft carriers. It bypassed all of that to go and kill like almost 80,000 Americans sick and a bunch more. And we basically lack, you know, whether it's a military, whether it's our regulatory bureaucracy, whether it's a simple lack of, of like the, the people to get the thing under control, we, we lack the ability to stop this. And so right now what is happening is, um, you know, like the country is essentially negotiating, I shouldn't say negotiating, it's essentially an unconditional surrender to the virus. Um, because like, for example, the concept of, Hey, everyone's going to get it herd immunity. That's basically throwing oneself on the mercy of God, because it's not at all clear that everyone's going to have, you know, immunity to this virus. That's, that's lifelong. Um, other coronaviruses, for example, have immunity that only drops off, uh, you know, after uh, two or three years, there's like a paper on that. Um, so it's, it's not clear that letting everybody get it means that they won't be able to get it again in the future. It may just be that letting everybody get it makes this like a, almost like a temperate malaria, you know, it's just endemic in the region and it just takes a toll every year. 
you know, people have talked about this being like the fifth endemic coronavirus and it becomes, you know, cold and flu and COVID-19 season, not just cold and flu season. And so, you know, the, the marginal line concept is one I think about a lot in this context where basically the entire 20th century establishment, interestingly, by the way, the other entity, major entities that have been invaded by the coronavirus, the ones who have been doing the worst are the other NATO countries, you know, UK, like France, Italy, Spain, Germany, and Russia. So the, the, the folks who are squaring off in the 20th century have basically been invaded and defeated by, you know, the coronavirus so far. And when I say defeated, like the occupation is, is going to begin. And, uh, and, and that's not going to be pleasant. People are, are fooling themselves and thinking it's going to be pleasant. It's not going to be pleasant. Anyway, I got on that because, you know, we're just kind of talking about magical lines and, and moving around them. But recognizing that something that seems impregnable isn't, if you change, you know, your, your, your mode is, is, I think, really important. You change, you change your point of view. Go ahead. Well, so I sort of like this, um, but I also feel like, I feel like I don't even understand where we are. And maybe the ideology that I want to entertain is, is that I have a certain kind of weakness of mind that I'm very good at opposing institutions um, because I know how they work, but I'm not used to an institution being this wrong, like blatantly. Mm. You know, when I start seeing science and nature talking about things that are completely insane in social justice theory, and I just think like, okay, whatever this thing is, it's broken through to science and nature. It's invaded Harvard, Princeton, Rockefeller University. Um, this inability to think uh, seems to be attacking everything institutional. And I would really say that that's the major thing that invaded us. It wasn't the virus because, you know. Right. Um, right. The, what, what's so, really invaded so us is that everything institutional is playing host to this particular kind of establishment stupidity at the moment. And there, in the old days, we had Noam Chomsky's inside of the establishment. Now we're down to like our last Noam Chomsky. So it used to be that it was very tough for everything to go this dumb because of the number of smart iconoclasts who sat in official chairs. And like what I see now is, is that effectively there are no people who are willing to stand up and say, this is insanity. Well, so here's a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, I think that um, in terms of history, a comparable period in some ways is, um, I mean, the Cultural Revolution, you know, from 66 to 76 was much more violent than you know the recent wokeness in the U.S. But there were some similarities in the sense that um, Jinghua, for example, which is like the Chinese MIT, was literally occupied by rival gangs of you know machine gun toting students, and you know they were shooting each other over some point of you know Maoist theory, right? Um, woke and woker, basically over there, right? And uh, I think a very important thing for folks to understand. Actually, Dalio had a very similar comment, like he had a similar, I think, mental model. Nobody has lived through anything like this in the US, but people have in history and they have in other places. And that's that's what's useful to really read, like the history of other places and other times. 
um, obviously history is of other times, but, you know, meaning non-American history. And, you know, many of the folks who have landed in the U.S., um, whether, uh, you know, from South America or from, you know, Central America or Iran, Russia, Eastern Europe, India, China, Korea, et cetera, et cetera, have been leaving economic or political instability, often communism, or in the case of India, socialism, or in the case of Iran, Islamic fundamentalism. And they've been part of functioning societies like, you know, Cuba, for example, under Batista was, you know, a flawed, but actually relatively well-off country. And then it all just went completely to hell, right? Same with, you know, uh, so many countries like, um, you know, when when communist revolutions come to town, uh, they can go from decent levels, you know, like Venezuela, for example, prior to, you know, Chavismo uh, to, to, you know, starvation. And so other places have seen that kind of fall. And, uh, you know, like how far do we have to fall? We have, we still have a ways to go. Uh, and, and I think that it's useful to think about these other countries and, and figure out how bad it could get. But why don't we come back to that point? Go ahead. So I, yeah, look, I, I don't want this to be, we can explore why we're getting knocked over by a feather. Um, but maybe what I'd rather do is to use the COVID situation and your different lens on it, uh, to to illustrate sort of where we are. So the, the kind of, here's some of the questions that are on my mind. Sure. What is the real end game of this? Where are we really? When 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 people are talking about reopening back to normal, um, I have the feeling that almost none of this stuff makes sense. And you know, the, my, my take on flatten the curve was that we were caught with our with our pants down with respect to preparedness, and so we were trying to av- avoid deaths of accountability which would be triage deaths. So then, you know, the issue was that the limbo bar was so low because we didn't want people dying to show that we were completely incompetent. So everybody should stay home so that we don't have deaths due to triage as opposed to deaths due to the coronavirus. I believe that a lot of what we're hearing in terms of how we're going to come back or when there's going to be a vaccine, uh, nobody really knows when there's going to be a vaccine or how that... What, what that's going to look like. What is the grown-up mature perspective on the possible scenarios to towards uh, normalization? So I think the grown-up mature perspective is, um, A, the virus is actually serious, um, and uh, I, can, I can go into why. Uh, basically, it's not just mortality, though mortality is quite high, but it's morbidity. That is to say, a lot of people are actually getting sick for weeks or even months, um, and uh, and that doesn't show up in death statistics. So let's just pause there because I think this is super important. Yep. So, Balaji, here's something that you could really do that would, I think, be very helpful to me. I would like to understand what are the basic scenarios that may be playing out if um, if our public officials were able to speak to us truthfully uh, what would they be saying if, if, if political economy and our relationship with China and uh, issues having to do with questions about preparedness and our supply chains weren't uh, deranging everything? What do you think the various scenarios 
are more or less in terms of the universality classes of what might happen next? So uh, maybe I'll say something you may not agree with, which is I think um, if we're being like truthful, uh, you know, in the public square, um, folks would say, uh, you know, in main dimensions, America is actually behind. Um, it thinks it's ahead, but it's behind, uh, which is similar to, you know, Blockbuster or Barnes and Nobles or Blackberry or other, you know, like once powerful entities that were disrupted by something that they didn't, they didn't see coming or didn't understand. And um, what this virus has done is basically it has shown that America can't physically innovate anymore, or at least cannot do so quickly enough or at um, any scale above an individual or a corporate level. It can't coordinate at the level of a town or a city or a state, let alone a country. Um, and uh, it, can, it can blow things up in other places, but building is harder than blowing something up. And so first thing is America's actually behind. I actually, you know, it's funny, I did a Twitter poll on this for what that's worth. You know, it's not a representative sample, but it's it's really a survey of the folks who are kind of in my, you know, my following or what have you. And I said, um, is America A, ahead, B, behind, or C, tied with China for, in a, for physical innovation? Um, and, uh, or rather, is China ahead? And 51% and said China was ahead. Uh, in this little, you know, non-scientific poll for what it's worth again, but just of, of folks who are in tech and of, of folks who would follow me on Twitter or what have you. Um, and, uh, you know, the other question I asked was, um, a, it's a kind of two part question. A, are you an American or not? And B, do you think the U S is still the world's undisputed number one superpower? And again, about um, so uh, roughly about half of the Americans said it is and half isn't and same for the rest of the world. Those are maybe about like 55 or 60, 40 for the Americans and, and maybe uh, 45, 55 the other, for the rest of the world. And so I think these are things which if you're, if you're being honest with the U.S., um, you want to start thinking about it in terms of like a great company um, or a great country that missed a few steps and that is not as far as ahead as people think. And that, uh, you know, that, that could, that could, you know, fall further and maybe will fall further, you know, given the Corona crisis, uh, and, and needs to realize that and needs to rebuild. Um, so, and I think like just saying that on a, on a, the problem with this is people will not receive a dispassionate analysis of strengths and weaknesses as constructive criticism. They'll say, oh my God, why do you hate this or hate that? Why do you hate the country or this? That's, it, that's not at all where it's coming from. It's a, it's a great country. It's given, you know, like my family and, and, you know, a lot of people a lot. Um, however, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, Japan before the Meiji restoration or China before Deng Xiaoping fixed it, or, you know, the Soviet Union in, in the eighties in some ways. So, you know, I'm not saying that the U S is as bad as the Soviet Union or, or Maoist China, um, or, uh, or, or frankly, you know, Microsoft, uh, under Steve Ballmer, it's basically in a stagnation that it needs to get out of. And Peter has talked about this, but it's now very clear that the consequence of not being able to innovate in the physical world has led to this. And that's one of the big things. The second big thing is the smart people, um, folks with technical and scientific ability are simply not steering the ship. And thus you have, you know, that you asked, okay, which official is going to give a straight answer? Those folks don't have the technical ability to give a straight answer. Um, it's it's not like 
you know, you're on the board and you can tell, ask the CEO, Hey, give me the figures on X, Y, and Z by W date, right? Like you can, you can expect a tech CEO to be on top of their metrics, um, because they have to be to survive as a company. Uh, but you know, our current government of the United States is not like the founder CEO. It's not the person you inherited from them. It's not the third generation. It's like, you know, the, the 40th generation, um, you know, for example, the mayor of New York wouldn't be able to build the NYPD from scratch, you know, uh, but somebody did at some point, they did staff that unit and they gave it tasks and they, uh, you know, they, they, they figured out the esprit de corps and, and, you know, rules of not, not exactly but, rules but of Bob, engagement, you, but basically yeah. John F. Kennedy wasn't one of our founding fathers, nor was Franklin no. Delano Roosevelt. Right. But, but the thing is that at a certain point, when you go enough generations, you lose that enough generations. We, we went away. enough generations. Yeah. It was still working. Yeah. But, but it's not anymore. Right. I, I agree with, I mean, I, I see us as dying from a very mysterious ailment, which is that we got two bad generations that do not give a shit about the future and are not smart enough or honest enough to recognize that what they're doing is stealing from their own children. You know, FDR put some of that stuff in place, right? Social security and, and whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a saying that uh, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation. And I'd agree there's a great deal of ruin in a nation. Do you know what that's from? It's like in, in Britain, someone, someone said to a prime minister, oh, this will be, or, or to someone in government, I don't know if it's a prime minister, but someone in government, oh, this will be the ruin of the nation. And, and he turned to the guy and he said very wisely, well, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation, meaning calm down, hold your horses, like eh, lots of stuff breaks, but you know we'll figure it out. But here's the thing. There's a great deal of ruin in a nation, but not an infinite amount. Um, you could well say that Cuba was ruined by you know, the, the Castro's revolution or that Iran was, you know, ruined for, for a generation by, you know, the, the Islamic revolution, um, countries do get messed up. And, um, it's, it's one of these things where, uh, you know, if, if you were wanted to be really provocative about it and you, and this is, this will have to see where things land up in a few years, you could say 1492 to 2020, you could say, basically, this is the first time that, the number one power in the world is uh, a Western country that um, has has sort of been invaded and defeated, you know, like uh, let's say like Portugal, Spain, um, the UK, France, uh, Russia, and then the United States. Um, the number one, you know, or in some cases tied for number one powers in the world uh, have been Western for a long time. And you can argue Russia, it's Eastern, you know, or Western that people always argue about its identity in that way. But, um, you know, now it's something where it's no longer, I think, the undisputed number one. And if you want to regain that, first, you have to realize that you don't have it anymore. Um, you can't you can't just like declare victory, mission accomplished over Corona while it rampages through the country and and there's green zones in other countries. You have to realize that actually it's. Yeah, go ahead. Let's, let's get back to scenarios that the virus will take and then we'll come back to whether or not the real issue is is that our leaders aren't smart enough to deliver information about spike proteins or something you know it's it's not just technical ability though that's the thing is that's easy to quantify it's also like managerial ability and leadership ability like people are selected you know like elections select for people who are good actors not necessarily good leaders 
and um, you know you can you can play act at being uh, you know a, a mayor or a governor or a leader of some kind as opposed to someone right. Go ahead. So let's assume that there's some issue that maybe somehow we don't have people smart enough to convey news from experts to the general public, but. I don't want to get infinitely caught up on that. What am I not getting okay. about this virus? Like, What do we know about this virus? I'm sorry. What am I not okay. getting? What are the likely scenarios for how we get okay. to, to something where people aren't asking, can I come out of my house yet? I mean, obviously, at some level, it could become normal that everybody shelters in place ad infinitum. It could become normal that we just say F it and we throw caution to the wind and we all go uh, you know, to on spring break in Florida, it could be that we come up with some sort of managed titration where we titrate back into the world, but nothing ever goes back to the way it was. What are the most likely scenarios that a competent and honest government would be able to level with us about if that was where we were, with a smarter population and smarter government to boot? So, you know, first thing I would say is, uh, I think, you know, if you, it's very. There's a great website called ncoronavirus.org by guys uh, out of uh, the Northeast. I think um, you know. Out of, uh, I think they're affiliated with Harvard, um, and uh, it basically shows that many countries have managed to get the virus under control. Basically, um, you know, through a combination of not just lockdown but uh, central quarantine, testing, uh, border control. Um, what does know, it mean to get the virus under control? Two things. It means number one that daily new cases are either zero or very close to that, and that's by the way the explicit goal of the head of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of Singapore, is to get new cases to zero. Number one, and then number two to keep the uh, RT reproduction number uh, below one in the event that it does arise again, um, and so so basically keep it down and have it stay down, right, and. For that to happen, you need to have uh, like not just a coordinated society, um, but a coordinated state. You know, you need both society and the state to work together. There's some exceptions to this. I would say maybe I shouldn't say need. Hong Kong is arguably a counterexample where people will say a society did it, but the state didn't, right? Um, but I think the first thing is it is possible to get the virus under control. It is not an inevitability that it goes to 100. percent I think it's an important point. Now, one can counter argue as to, okay, how expensive is it to do that forever, right? Will these green zones be able to keep themselves green? And I kind of think they will, uh, or at least many of them will, uh, because once you've gotten cases down to zero and you're sort of woke to the virus and you've set up your defenses, uh, I, I can get into what those defenses are technologically and societally, because I don't think people in the West have really followed it too much. Should I talk about that? Okay. So um, here's here's just some of the things folks And you doing. might want to talk about uh, green zones. Talk about the zones right, so, yeah. as well. Let me define it, right? So, so a green zone is a place with comprehensive testing that has no new cases in, let's say, the last two weeks. Okay. Um, you could change the time parameter. You could say four weeks or something, but conceptually, that's right. Uh, and it also keeps the virus from coming back up. So the reproduction number stays below one in the event that there is a flare. Uh, a red zone is everywhere else. And there's degrees of green and red. Um, and essentially, the new developed world and developing world, I think, is going to be green zones and red zones. 
and that is to say talent and capital will prefer to be in green zones and to avoid or get out of red zones if they if it can um and and the reason for that is several fold uh first is like the you know and this is a premise which I'm, I'm I'm surprised that I still have to argue it in May, but the virus is serious. And, um, you know, at, at first you might think, oh, look at the death counts. Of course, people would agree it's serious. Um, but people will throw up various, in my view, spurious objections. The most, I think, intelligent objection is, yes, there's 80,000 deaths in the U.S. There's hundreds of thousands of deaths worldwide, but they're concentrated in older people and people with pre-existing conditions and therefore... Uh, you know, much of the population isn't at risk. So let them out of lockdown, go back to work. It's not a big deal, right? Uh, for most people. My counter argument to that would basically be, all right, um, other countries, uh, lockdown was just one component of what they did. It, it was it was an important component, but the US has sort of done a cargo cult lockdown. Number two is um, the there's a lot of folks, uh, we don't know the exact number, but there's many folks under age 50 We've had very serious conditions uh, that are not lethal. They're not dead. Um, they may all, not always be hospitalized, but they're serious. And uh, you know whether you want to believe WHO or not, WHO reported like something like 19% of people have a severe or critical condition, whereas 80% are mild. Um, if that maps to the experienced severity that folks uh, you know that I that I've seen, and people I know have had very severe cases, they're not dead. They're not hospitalized. But it's the worst illness they've had in their lives. They've had very long convalescences, you know, weeks to months, like eight weeks or so. Are Joe they permanent? Someone on this, right? Are they permanently impaired? For example, lung tissue Great that question. never comes back. Great question. Um, so I tweeted on this in March, actually. Um, SARS and MERS. There are studies. So there's a uh, group out of uh, UCLA, and I think David Geffen School of Medicine, um, UCLA and USC, that published a paper saying. Uh, we need longitudinal monitoring of people who have recovered from COVID-19 to see if they have permanent lung damage because some a good chunk of folks with SARS and MERS did. Um, so, you know, the thing about the long term is we'll only know it in the long term, but I do think we should be doing longitudinal studies of patients. We should be quantifying morbidity better, not just mortality. Yes, we need to know death statistics across demographics. It's very important. But we also need to know things like self-reported severity, uh, duration of illness, length of convalescence, meaning recovery after illness, um, self-reported recurrence of symptoms, uh, and um, you know then things like CT scans, like at you know thirty and sixty and ninety-day intervals, and other kinds of things. Like, are, do are people getting back? And here's the issue: is even if it's just a serious, and I say just in quotes, but just a very serious illness which um, knocks out, you know, with some probability, healthy 30 and 40 year olds for eight weeks or 10 weeks. That's something where, you know, if, if, if you had a choice, you would avoid an area where you could get that very easily. Your team would avoid an area. They would not, you would not be able to recruit people to such a city very easily um, if, if they had a choice of an equivalent job somewhere else. And uh, so, you know, what, what, what that does is it turns, you know, the first thing in real estate from location, location, location to infection, infection, infection. Um, it's deeper than that as well. People think, oh, you know, end the lockdowns, but end the lockdowns doesn't by its own bring back the market. 
one way of thinking about it is, you know, we, we earlier we made the uh, analogy to an invasion, right? An invasion by a virus. There's another analogy I'm going to give, which is in terms of a public utility. Um, our society is explicitly premised on electrical power. That is to say, you know, there's there's power outlets for for all kinds of stuff, and if the power goes out, we wouldn't tell people, oh, just bull through it, right? Because you need to charge your computer, and you know you can't tell a restaurant, oh, just bolt through it. If their oven doesn't work, they're not going to be able to serve too many customers. Maybe they can cobble a salad together, but they're operating way below capacity. They won't be able to, you know, handle any apps. Their, their demand will be way down in lots of ways. People won't be able to get there, and um, and they won't be able to serve them. Supply will also be down. And so uh, the the point I'm making is our society is also implicitly premised. Just like it's explicitly premised on power as well as water, internet, roads, it's implicitly premised on the absence of serious infectious uh, disease from public venues. Uh, and the thing is that 50 years ago, this was understood to be a big deal. That is to say, you know, I tweeted something on the conquest of public health uh, or conquest of infectious diseases, you know, a bicentennial review. It was understood that you know, getting you know cholera and malaria and stuff like that under control, and turning them into non-issues was a massive achievement, and uh, that was that was something that was a huge social and technological achievement of coordination. Well, even like the banishing and, of malaria from Southern Europe and the Southern United States, you know, it led us to think in terms of well, malaria cannot be an American problem or an Italian yes. problem. Yes. Bingo. That's exactly right. So the, the, the issue is that um, power and water are utilities that are noticeable by their presence, but public health is noticeable by its absence. And so, you know, just like, like a, an electromagnetic pulse would mean the power has gone out in America, this is like the health has gone out in America. And so what, what that means is you can't just tell a restaurant bull through this, okay? Because here's what happens. First, like California put out these guidelines for in-person restaurants, how to reopen. I'm just using restaurants as a working example because many of the things you know apply there. Okay, first, these guidelines essentially expect Joe's Diner to implement biodefense mode. Okay, it's like 12 pages of like the most ridiculous requirements. Get hand sanitizer, get this. You can't even buy that stuff. Um, or if you can, it's expensive. So, so first is the, the these restaurants are hit with new guidelines. They're not trained or skilled in this kind of thing. They're they're great at cooking food, not like sanitizing a, a place to, to, to for a deadly virus. Uh, number two is it's a new tax on them because they need to buy all this equipment and train their workers. Number three, because of social distancing, they have to space their tables out so they have less revenue that way. It's the opposite of a crowded restaurant, right? Um, number four. Uh, they have fewer customers because half their customer base or whatever fraction, basically like having the uncontrolled virus means, hey, I'm risking it every time I walk down. And um, this is something that the folks who are arguing, oh, the virus isn't that bad because the mortality rates, you know, it's not killing 50% of people, right? And my argument is, okay, yeah, sure. Relative to death, you can say anything is not a big deal. Right. Death is the worst outcome, right? But relative to a cup of coffee or, you know, a slice of cheesecake or whatever at the local, you know, cafe, uh, you know, 10 weeks of serious illness is not um, something that you want to casually risk for that. Let's say, you know, yes, okay, you can argue the virus isn't as bad as dying, fine. But it's also 
you know, this consumer benefit you're offering is not as good as the risk of, you know, where it is in the middle. Right. And, and so, you know, one way of conceptualizing that is, and you know, I'm not, I'm not just like a economic um, determinist by any means, but for those people who are in the language of economics, okay, let's say that the virus would, you know, on, on average do $10,000 of damage to you. Um, for example, it puts you out of work for that many weeks. You make $50,000 a year, it puts you out of work for 10 weeks. Okay. Um, so let's say it does $10,000 of damage in the event of a serious case. Um, and you have uh, a 5% chance of getting the virus and a 30% chance conditional on getting the virus of having a serious case. And then it costs you $10,000 for 10 weeks of sickness. Okay. That is um, 5% to 30% of 10,000. That's $150 cost that is now being imposed on every interaction that has a chance of getting the virus, right? And that's not worth it for many kinds of things. And I'm not saying that people will calculate that numerically and explicitly, but implicitly, I think that that is going to be a tax on a lot of economic behavior for that many weeks. You make $50,000 a year, it puts you out of work for 10 weeks. Okay. Um, so let's say it does $10,000 of damage in the event of a serious case. Um, and you have uh, a 5% chance of getting the virus and a 30% chance conditional on getting the virus of having a serious case. And then it costs you $10,000 for 10 weeks of sickness. Okay. That is um, 5% to 30% of 10,000. That's $150 cost that is now being imposed on every interaction that has a chance of getting the virus, right? And that's not worth it for many kinds of things. And I'm not saying that people will calculate that numerically and explicitly, but implicitly, I think that that is going to be a tax on a lot of economic behavior. Go ahead. So I, I like the general framework here, but I think we're, we're sort of skipping a step, which is that most of us want to know what this is going to look like. So in a, in a green zone, for example, so uh, let's say that I buy into your red zone, green zone thing, thing. In a green zone, am I shaking hands with people I meet? No, you're, you're, you're probably like, you're probably having some degree of social distancing. Well, okay, I'll put it like this. I think, I think you're more likely to shake hands with somebody in a green zone, certainly. But um, but I I think that on balance until um, until smart people will probably continue to take precautions even in green zones. But um, I think that you'd be more likely to shake hands or or go to a restaurant in a green zone certainly than a red zone. And in my green zone, um, let's say five years from now, am I wearing a mask constantly when I'm outdoors? So the, there's major branch points here. And so here's some of the key variables, right? The first is, um, do we get a drug or vaccine ever for this? Okay. Um, and because uh, there's some things, you know, HIV is, I mean, we've turned into a chronic disease, but we haven't cured it. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm not saying this is, I, I, we don't know yet. People thought there was going to be an HIV vaccine very quickly. There's good reason. Peter Kulczynski actually has a great article in City Journal on the case for why you, you should get a coronavirus vaccine. Um, he thinks it is possible. It's been done in other animals and, and so on. So that's that's important. Um, on their hand, nothing's ever certain. So uh, especially in science, you're talking about technological innovation, something that has not been done. So it's hard to do it on a schedule. Um so A is, is, is there a drug or a vaccine? And a drug meaning something that knocks it down to a basic non-issue, right? It doesn't have to cure it completely, but it knocks it down. Is there a drug or a vaccine, number one? And if so, how fast does it arrive, right? And um, the uh, there's this warp speed project that's being announced. I mean, 
maybe they'll get something out there. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Certainly, Have like, you seen the list of people who's in it? Um, no, actually, I, I, I didn't look at that yet. Can I ask you a question on that just sure. as an intermediate? Sure. When you think about the smart people you're talking to relative to this virus, mm -hmm. technical, technically capable people, people who can think well outside the box, look operate there, execute. Are you aware of these people being herded up by our national government and put in service of the public health? Um, so there was a Wall Street Journal article saying that there's um, like a, like, a, part, like that secret. I don't want to talk about informal things that we're all doing to connect up. Right. Like I, I have a very simple no, I, metric. I the thrust of your, your, your question is, uh, you know, I, I would say no. Um, like there's there's informal connections and so on and so forth. But there's nothing uh, that. Uh, you know, and again, I need to look at warp speed. It, I think it just came out like uh, you know yesterday, so yeah, I just like, have to read about it. Read about it. Um, Apology. Uh, Go ahead. It's not where the question is different, and I guess you know part of the problem is is that it, it feels to me like nobody has the right emotional valence, and so I'll just say it very starkly. Um, the instantaneous thing to do was to identify a group of people who were early or are thought of. I don't know, highly by people who are early and get them all tested, tell them to report to central facilities, put them in some giant dorm with a Marine at the barrack, you know, at the, at the, at the entrance, get, make sure that you print up uh, security, you know, expedite security clearances and have them go right, crazy. Like movie like thing. What? Like, like uh, kind of out of a movie. No, not kind of out of a movie, kind of out of the World War II era. Right, right. So I mean, so it might as well be out of a movie. No. <laughs> go ahead. Right. Go yeah, ahead. but like I, don't, I saw that move and I didn't, and I and I rejected it. Okay. No. Go it, ahead. This is go like ahead. what smart people do when they're not stupid. I mean, I, I don't know how to say this politely, but right, like, right. I, I know tons of people who should have been called, and I kept asking, "Are you called?" And they'd say things like, "No, we're we're passing our best thoughts to somebody who might be." close to somebody on the Security Council. And my thought was, you're not in Washington, D.C. You're not at whiteboards. Nobody told you to tell your family you're going to be gone for three months. Like, we didn't do anything smart. Yeah, so, so you know, I tweeted this, but basically, um, amazingly, the U.S. today reminds me of the India of my youth, in the sense of, you know, India is a country with a lot of smart people that just couldn't get it together at a societal level for a long, long, long time. Um, now, amazingly, I would actually argue, despite even though it's it's got a serious outbreak and so on, um, you know, India, I think when, when you know, this is a prediction, and, and I, I would not call it 100% or anything like that. I could be proven wrong in six months to a year. My overall feeling is India is punching above its weight. Um, in this whole crisis and has had a higher state capacity than the U.S. over this, which is amazing to me. Um, where knowing India, it's astounding. Knowing India, it's astounding, it's right? Astounding. Like, it's astounding. It, it's astounding. And India has actually done a better job than, frankly, maybe, you know, the France, Italy, the U.K. Like, it's I don't, I don't want to even get yeah. into whether they did a good job or a bad job. When I... You know, I mean, both you and I have a fair amount of interaction with India. When I heard that India was going to actually try to coordinate, like sheltering in place, I thought, 
what do you think you are, Luxembourg? I mean, right, 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 right. But, but they've actually so they didn't just do that. They've shipped like a national telemedicine app with contact tracing. I mean, it has bugs and so on, but like you know, it's it's out there. Uh, it's which no other Western democracy, to my knowledge, has at least. You know, maybe Estonia has something, but not a large Western democracy. Um, it they they got uh, you know in I remember in March I posted a SoundCloud um, where every single Indian on a, when they picked up the phone to call somebody there was a thirty second public health announcement played with a consistent set of talking points from the government. Um, you know the the prime minister never said oh it's just the flu or anything like that. They were taking it seriously from the beginning. They sealed the border to such an extent that you know it, even citizens found it hard to get back in, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, like they they did a lot of the blocking and tackling that I was just like, what? I was I was honestly stunned um, because India has come so far, and then the U.S. has come far in the opposite direction. Uh, do I have an explanation for it? it? You you can't give a technological determinist explanation, or at least not not an obvious one, because India and China have been rising over the same period that the U.S. and U.K. and Italy and so on have been falling. Um, I think you you sort of have to argue it from just like a civilizational arc standpoint. You know, just like empires rise and they fall. You know, maybe you could you can give other determinants. You and I are in different places about this. I just, my feeling is like, okay, so we got stuck with, you know, the modern Republican and Democratic Party leadership and like, you know, 30 people are going to take down one of the greatest national experiments in the history of the world. Ah, so you think of it as a small, okay. You think if you just change out 30 people, you could fix it. Is that, is that your mental block? Cause I think that's a really, it's like, no. you know, the earth no, no. my model is, is that we got hit with something almost 50 years ago, which is this economic anomaly. 1971. Then, we then developed a culture of, uh, of covering up the economic anomaly that has run its course after 50 years. But my belief about that was that, um, you know, about when we got the Clintons in 1992, we took a really dangerous turn towards sophisticated sounding total bullshit. Like, I, I really believe that the, you know, Reagan, you could sort of see that they were trying to restart the, the miracle and maybe all of the mergers and acquisitions and getting rid of antitrust and dereg and all that kind of stuff was thought that it might work and then realized, okay, well, maybe it doesn't work well enough to restart growth, but it's good enough to uh, get some of us rich at the expense of some of the rest of us. And then the Clintons just took that and, you know, raised it to some really high power. And now we're, we're left with a situation where we can't reboot from anything because roughly speaking, I don't know, the people that I would want in control of this thing are like people on the internet. They're like you. I mean, who the hell are you? I don't know. But like, you know, when I when I get confused about where we are, I don't call up the Centers for Disease Control and say, walk me through this or dear WHO, um, you know, explain how this all makes sense. I, I call up people who are in these weird off the beaten path technical um, centers, you know, and, and, and that is a failure of our society. So what my model is, different from most of the rest of yours is that I just think the important thing is to tell Hillary Clinton and all of her friends to get up out of their chairs and move. 
Like we can't have the dumb people leading the country. We can't have Donald Trump as the president bungling this this badly. And then we get into this really weird thing where we've got like the Trumpies who can't stand the fact that they can see that the New York Times is full of nonsense and that the Democratic Party is filled with nonsense, which they're quite, quite accurate about. Or then you get, you know, all of the Democrats and the academics are like, oh, my God, you're, you know, you're opening us up to crazy anti-vaxxers and gun nuts, you know, and it's like, okay, well, first of all, whoever you guys are, don't you realize that this is a pandemic and this is the time to get all of the weak people, the stupid people, the non-creative people, the conventional people out of the chairs. And there's like a religion about you can't say that. Who would you put in the chairs and why are your friends better than any? It's like, look, I guarantee you that if you ask the virology community, who are the 10 best virologists in the world? You get a fair amount of agreement. And the key thing that we don't have is we don't have people who know that they have a job the next week if they speak the truth or that they can get grants the next week. But I wanted to continue to get back on this other topic, which is what does it look like if you manage everything well? Do we ever go back to hugging strangers when we meet them? Do we ever go back to expecting that we're going to walk down the street and not see face masks. Do we, it, because you see, even if we get these vaccines for this biology, it's really the case that we forgot what pathogens were. You know, yeah. we, we've had this very long, like, you know, you're younger than I am. And I, I at least had the Hong Kong flu as a, as a, as a very young kid. Um, and, you know, most people don't even remember that there was a Hong Kong flu in the late 60s. And that, that sense that swimming pools were a dangerous place during the polio epidemic, that, you know, we, we've been through this stuff. And I'm not sure that this is the disease that maybe will defeat this one, you know. But there's still some different thing, which is, are we going to continue to have, um, you know, gain of function research? Are we going to continue to have biosafety level four labs all over the world doing whatever that it is that they do? Are we going to continue to be able to meet each other as strangers? Or is this a permanent cultural shift? Is it, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is what is the likely trajectory for this particular disease? So, um, so I obviously predicting the future is challenging, but here let me give different scenarios and I'll give some probability estimates or whatever. Um, so I think the biggest branch point is, uh, as I mentioned before, like uh, A, is there a drug or vaccine developed? And then B, how fast? Um, and obviously, you know, in the event that some miracle cure comes out uh, tomorrow um, and it's scaled to billions of people, uh, well, even then, I still think you've you've still got a giant crisis on your hands because a lot of these jobs have basically been destroyed. There's a lot of bankruptcy. You can't you can't unwind. You know, actually, Josh Wolf actually had a good point on this, where to bring the market back up, you just need people to um, repurchase the stocks they just sold. It's a reversible thing in the language of thermodynamics, right? But when lots of people are fired, businesses shut down and bankrupted, those folks get new jobs, they move other places the economy gets reallocated. That's not something you can just reverse, right? You can't just click your fingers and reverse it. 
So even well, if can piece, you can piece together any glass that you uh, drop on a tile floor, it'll just take you some time. Well, so my, my point is that, you know, when you have something where on, on the, the peak number of unemployed on, on a weekly basis was something like 7 million people, uh, you know, in, in the recent reports, and that was 10x the highest number during the financial crisis. And it took, I think, on the order of 10 years, like um, 2017, before unemployment levels returned to before the financial crisis. So when you've got 10x the financial crisis, I mean, I think that's a generational recovery just on the economic stuff. Um, and I mean, potentially, at least that, that's, there's a scenario with that. I, I don't say 100%, but that's like, would I, would I bet that this is worse than the financial crisis? Yes. Uh, and um, because it's not fundamentally a an economic event or a political event. It's a, it's a biological event, right? It's upstream. It, let me, let me go a little bit further. So, so let's talk about, I, I want to answer your question. So I think green zones may be able to get it under control without a drug or vaccine, just by testing border control and, and frankly, having locus of control, right? Like they say, they believe that they can actually do it. Whereas Swedes and others have adopted some sort of fatalistic posture, which is everyone's going to get it, so might as well get it over with. And they don't realize that that has a lot of risk to it. Um, and, you know, it does. It's just like, it, it maybe it works out, right? Like I don't even understand. Look, look, every time somebody says one of these things, I just, I, I scratch my head because I think, well, do you want to get it early before people understand best practices? Or do you want to get it late when people understand what works and what doesn't, for example? It, I mean, it's it. I I sort of get that people are like, oh, let me rip the bandaid and get it over with. But we don't know what the length of immunity is. It's obviously knocking out a bunch of people. Um, I think it's going to make people sicker than they think it is. Uh, and and why would you let, you know, it, basically one point I made this point to somebody like, if you had the state capacity of a South Korea or a Taiwan or a New Zealand or a China or an Australia or Slovakia or any of these places that's gotten it under control or at least seems to have. You would never, if you had the option of getting it under control, choose herd immunity as a strategy. You and when I say, you know, like you never do that, right? It's like, you know, hey, you've got a fire extinguisher, you put out the fire. Oh, let me burn down my house so that, or let it burn down my house, such that like it'll be a fire break to future fires in the future. Okay, you know, may, might work, you know, but it wouldn't be the strategy you would choose. It, it seems more like calling defeat. Oh, I meant to do that. Oh, I, I, I rejected Harvard, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it's um, like if, if the old lady who swallowed a fly started with a horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like that. Right. Like, so, so I, I think, um, the, the red zone, green zone distinction will be important as well in terms of what that future looks like in, uh, you know, in a, in a green zone, I think you're going to have a greater degree of normality. That is, say, you're going to be able to assemble crowds. Um, you're going to be able to, you know, people can go back to bars and so on. However, with that said, even in green zones, uh, did you see what happened in South Korea with the bar? Tell me. So uh, a COVID-19 positive person who is asymptomatic uh, walked into a bar and um, basically infected, uh, went to five bars in a night uh, and infected on the order of 40 to 70 people resulting in 1,900 people being tested and traced and 2,000 bars being shut down. Okay, so that's what like a serious society is doing to keep this thing under control. And it, because you, you, uh, an interesting mental model for this is a viral fire, right? 
Right. Yep. Fire is fire. burning within people and can pass between people and can go whoosh like this very quickly. You know, people are kindling for the fire, right? If people are kept apart from each other physically, the fire can't spread, you know? And uh, so I think that the adaptation we're going to have, I think the, the, the most likely thing I can see is there'll be very large economic costs for assembling large crowds in person. So, so especially large crowds of strangers. Incorporated externalities. Yeah. So what that means is the pandemic insurance for your concert or your rally or something like that is going to be high. Um, because, you know, in theory, you're liable. Once you know about this, once it's no longer force majeure, this is, I mean, this is something that will be in every single contract, right? So large crowds, I mean, you know, I had a one-liner for this. I call it the physical divide. The reason is, you know, people used to talk about the digital divide, right? But, you know, for, for 70 years, we've gotten really good at packing a bunch of transistors on a chip. That's become really cheap. You know, it's become suddenly really expensive, Eric? Putting a bunch of people in a room. Okay. So that's become very, very, very expensive suddenly. Okay. And uh, so, so I think. Biology's law where we have to get more and more sparse as time goes on. So, so what I think is, yeah, there's, there's now, one of the big things is there's a tax on large in-person gatherings and crucially there's, there's a few big differences. People will often quote this. They'll be like, oh, Hey, after, you know, the Spanish flu, we had the roaring twenties. It's so ahistorical to say anything will change after this. It'll all go back exactly how it was. You crazy tech person. Right. And, you know, you know, just like the, just the flu kind of person, I call this argument just the Spanish flu. Just the Spanish flu. Which thing is clever, right? Okay. So the just the Spanish flu argument basically says, this is just the Spanish flu. Yeah, that killed like 100 million people, but nothing happened lasting from it. We had the roaring 20s and you didn't even read about it. Well, we're there, there, there are a few major differences. Not, not, yeah. So, so what I'm meaning, there are major differences from that period. And let me go through some, because I had to think about this a lot and do some research on it to articulate why would there be a branch point, right? Why would the Spanish flu not seemingly have such a large effect where people are in crowds two or three years later, but this this one would. So um, first, and this is just a like to anchor, the economy of, do you know what the Carrington event was? Okay, so for your readers or, or listeners, uh, I think 1857, the Carrington event um, was a solar storm that uh, resulted in basically like telegraphs catching fire or what have you. But for the most part, the economy of 1857 continued uh, despite this giant solar storm um, because it wasn't, you know, felt, it wasn't elect- exactly. So in a, in a very obvious sense, the economy of 2020 is more vulnerable to an electromagnetic pulse or a solar storm than the economy of 1857 or 1918, right? So despite all our advancements, we're more vulnerable along that axis of an electromagnetic pulse. Everybody would agree with that, right? So then a fundamental question is, is the economy of 2020 also more vulnerable in an unarticulated sense to a pandemic than the economy of 1918, right? Because we can give an example where it was more vulnerable because it's very explicit and quantifiable. It's electrical stuff no longer works, right? Once you kind of analogized, going back to our previous point about how it's like a health outage, just like a power outage, you know, when the power, the, the, the difference is the power is more tangible because you, you bank on its presence. 
uh, with health, you're depending on the infection's absence. So it's only you know tang tangible in, in, in the opposite case. With a health outage, what businesses, what activities, what parts of our economy and society are premised on the absence of serious infectious disease from society? So the most obvious one are crowds, right? B big crowds are out, and I think out for a generation. Um, that uh, that's something at least as a as a um, crowd to to materialize a crowd in one location will be considered a show of strength. Okay, it's considered a society that is so confident and so advanced that it feels like it's just wiped out the disease. Or or it is also possible, by the way, and I want to make sure I, it is possible the herd immunity argument works. I can't say I, I'm, I don't say it's not possible. I've just said it's risky, you know. Uh, so the the it is possible that this tears through the whole population like the Spanish flu did, and then it's not a recurring issue. It just kills its hundred million or whatever it is. And, well, and it, there's and it an issue about is the best thing from the point of view of lineage a bloodbath. You know that even if a small number of us make it through, because you know take something where you've got a mutant receptor that makes it very difficult for the virus to attach. Just imagine. I mean, I think the best thing for lineage would be for us to invent, to, to, to get the biotechnology and biomedicine of 2100 and bring it into 2021, you know, or 2020, you know, like essentially to advance biomedicine quickly so that all the crazy stuff, you know, uh, like, for example, just getting a readout on your body to figure out exactly what's wrong. You know, this is Mike Snyder's Integrome is kind of like this. It was a professor at Stanford Medical School who took a bunch of different assays and ran them all at the same time and was able to find out when he was getting sick and when he was having diabetes or diabetes-like symptoms because he could see the readouts. It wasn't just univariate. It was highly multivariate. So like getting readouts like that on people um, or all the promise of like nanomedicine, you know. And this is stuff where it's like you're actually sending in mini robots to go and like attack the uh, attack the virus, all the crazy sounding stuff or life extension, you know, like like what uh, David Sinclair talks about. Go ahead. So that's cool. What about surveillance medicine, surveillance based medicine? OK, so so let's talk about this. Right. So the good scenario, as I was saying, is you advance biomedicine in the treatment sense and so on, diagnostic sense well enough that, uh, you know, Corona becomes a non-issue. COVID-19 is a non-issue, even if it's still around. Um, I want to talk about interesting things that China is doing to, just for people to know what they're doing. Uh, you know, whether or not, I mean, one of the things that the U.S. did is it copied lockdown from Italy, which in turn copied it from China. So we've already kind of cloned China without acknowledging we're cloning China or looking at the original source material to figure out exactly what they did. For example, they didn't just give stay-at-home orders. Anybody who was tested positive was then central central quarantine, for example, right? There's a hundred differences in terms of the execution. It's like the difference between saying, you know, build a social network and build Facebook, right? There's, there's a huge difference in the execution. Okay. So with that said, we should understand what China is doing, if not, not necessarily to copy it, but at least to understand. Okay. One of the things they're doing is everybody in China has WeChat. And WeChat is not used that much in the West, but in China, it's like a combination PayPal and uh, Messenger and Facebook and so on. But even more than that, it's like your handheld interface to society. You Any any restaurant stall, you know, like that you walk up to, any government building, anything has a digital interface on WeChat. And in fact, 
you don't even need the physical interface. You don't need a point of sale terminal. They're just like, here's my WeChat code and you just QR scan it and go, right? Okay. So WeChat's completely ubiquitous in China. And um, it is uh, it's something where one of the features they've rolled out in WeChat is a national COVID-19 app that gives every citizen a uh, green, yellow, or red code. Uh, corresponding to green is you're considered healthy. You can travel, get on subways, whatever, keep going. Yellow is um, you are supposed to be, I think, stay at home and uh, you're exposed, right? And uh, red is you're confirmed positive. You have to go to supervised quarantine, okay? Now, this is basically a way of instrumenting the entire country for coronavirus. And you could imagine standing in front of a gigantic monitor where you're looking at the greens, the yellows, and reds across China. And, you know, of course, those labels need to be kept up to date, which I'll come back to. But assuming they are kept up to date, by sensor fusion, you know, you take a bunch of different kinds of tests and you have, okay, what is P of uh, label equals Y, yellow, given this vector of variables, right? You basically have a conditional probability function that you're estimating. So you have this gigantic screen, mentally at least, which has all of these nodes moving around and they're colored green, yellow, or red. And now, if you, if you remember that South Korea example, what happened was a red walked into a crowd of greens or a yellow walked into a crowd of greens in a bar. Now, rather than going and just trying to track them down, you can see them on screen. You can hit one button and the 50 people that that yellow was near are all marked yellow themselves. And they all get text messages telling them- Is this exciting to you? What's that? What's that? Is this exciting to you? I think it's, uh, so there's obviously bad aspects to it, right? Like in the sense of this is total surveillance and so on. Um, well, I'm just, I'm, it, I'm monitoring a change in my friends from going from being diehard libertarians to, oh my God, the surveillance economy is going to be huge. I would never call myself a diehard libertarian, nor would I call myself a statist or, you know, or anything like that. And let me explain why. I'm not talking about you. Yeah, You're yeah. too original. Forget it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so, I have so, noticed like a very strange change where a lot of my libertarian friends who were early on the virus are wildly into surveillance. So here's the thing about this is... Um, the pandemic is like a war in the sense of uh, it, it is like being invaded by a virus. And, uh, you know, Lincoln famously suspended habeas corpus. Um, there were many violations of civil liberties and so on that happened during World War II. But crucially, um, the country did come back to a state of normality afterwards, after that, you know, uh, rival um, was defeated after that enemy was defeated, right? And so, um, you know, there's basically three models, right? The first model is you don't allow the state to do anything, and then you fall into kind of a market anarchy. I'll come back to that because I think that's what's going to happen in a lot of the U.S. Um, we're on track for that. Uh, the second model is you do let the state do something, and it manages to solve the problem. If it doesn't, it goes back to market anarchy. But it, it manages to solve the problem, and it uh, doesn't give up power in which case by 2025 or 2026 or 2023, um, you're going to be pushing hard on decentralization and crypto. Or in the third case, like the good government, it takes on these superpowers and then it, of its own accord, gives them up later, 
right? Now, that's that's unlikely, but it's not completely unprecedented. For example, South Africa in the transition from apartheid gave up its nukes. Um, Ukraine, when it became an independent Soviet republic, gave up its nukes. So it is uh, you know, it is unlikely for a state to give up its powers, but it's not unprecedented for it to do so. It does happen sometimes. So those are kind of three outcomes. Um, I'd say what I'm most excited about, I'm not really excited about anything, but I do think that the best bet is an intelligent state that puts out the viral fire and then sends the fire engines home. You know, like it, it does not does not maintain that uh, uh, you know, so you say intelligence for, state. Do you mean intelligent as in smart, or intelligent as in surveillance? Intelligent as in smart, as in like enlightened. You know, okay. um, so just going okay. back to the the yellow, red, and green code thing. So the thing about this is, you know, we already in the U.S. have NSA tracking of cell phones. That's been around since 2013, at least. Snowden has has revealed that. Um, we uh, we have um, lockdown and house arrest. Uh, we have taken on a ton of the economic costs. It, it kind of seems to me like you know you, you'd want to put out the viral fire. But uh, let me describe a little bit further this system, how it works. Um, I'm, by the way, to be clear, I'm not advocating for this. I'm just saying how it works so you can see it. So folks, this green, yellow, and red code. And um, now there's another aspect to it, which is at least it's been reported that uh, China's trying to test all 11 million people in Wuhan in 10 days. Okay. Now, if they can do that, you've got WeChat, which is the social graph. Okay. So you visualize like, you know, the social graph of, you know, Wuhan and it's superimposed on the map. Everyone's got X, Y coordinates and these nodes are kind of walking around and they're connected to each other in at least two ways. One is A is a friend of B. And the other is a proximity graph, which is based on their XY locations over time, right? And whether they're near enough to somebody else, because you can certainly be physically near somebody who's not your friend in the social network, right? So you have this graph, the social network, or, or and proximity graph. And now you superimpose colors, the green, yellow, and red. And now what you do, what they're doing with this testing thing is they're trying to test, again, it being reported, um, 11 million people in 10 days. And if you have the state capacity to do that, it's like dropping a massive amount of flares over a region, such that you're lighting up all of the nodes. It's like total testing, right? It's no longer population, you know, it's not sampling, it's total testing. And now you've got very fresh labels on the nodes. Are they green, yellow, and red? And here's a crucial thing. If you can do that, if you can take an entire city, if you can light up the entire city social network with testing and find the yellow and red nodes, well, you would find any hidden disease reservoirs. That's so amazing. You could then centrally quarantine or you have them do, you know, stay at home uh, and you put out the fire because you find the disease reservoirs, right? And then you don't have to, like, you, you can now do that like city by city. Okay. It's like a clear and hold strategy, it's like counterinsurgency. So with just testing and quarantine, you could potentially put out the virus like this, right? Now, um, the reason I describe this is it's, you know, you might think, wow, that's an insane violation of civil liberties that we would never do, et cetera, et cetera. But that was what people said about like what happened with the lockdown in Wuhan. And then it was basically done by Western countries like six weeks later and done in a 
bad and amateurish kind of way. It was like, if you're doing a lockdown, you know, you don't want to, there's a hundred other things that had that ever done. And I published a bunch of this stuff in, in, in March, by the way, on what was actually happening in other countries, South Korea, Taiwan, et cetera. But point being that uh, it is possible, potentially, it appears possible to put out the viral fire with techniques short of a drug or vaccine. And, you know, this makes sense in the sense of, you know, we, the, you know, the U.S. conquered a bunch of infectious diseases before they had PCR testing, before they had genome sequencing, you know, sometimes like, you know, quarantine and, and elbow grease can get you much farther than you might think. So, uh, so let me pause there. That gives some sense of how you can get the virus under control. Well, I, and I appreciate your, your analogy to wartime. I, I often talk about regulated expression as a paradigm that we don't use enough. Regulated, regulated, regulated expression. Well, just from biology, that you have some reaction that you don't want to be present generally. Uh -huh. But the idea is like, okay, well, I'm going to upregulate this and downregulate that relative to the situation. Right. And right. saying that this is like life during wartime. Um, means that there are restrictions on civil liberties that aren't usually in place. And then, you know, the, the concern, of course, is that the argument, well, we already have X, and so this is X plus Epsilon. We already had Snowden's revelations, and so we know that we're doing this already. We should just make use of the data. You know, if I play that game, um, that compounds to tyranny very quickly. Absolutely. Now I've got, now I've got agree, the information that says that, um, so and so is going to give syphilis to so and so else today. You know, what so, do we so, do? Yeah, yeah, no, no, totally, totally. And the thing is that basically, the U.S. government has proven itself so incompetent in this current set of circumstances that I don't think it would be smart to advocate for it having any more power. Um, so I want to be clear about that. But I do think it's important to understand what is being done successfully in the rest of the world even if it's not imitated directly. For example, there's privacy-preserving contact tracing, right? Um, maybe that gets you 60%, right? Uh, maybe you have something where enough people opt in to a green, yellow, red code system to put out the fire in their city. There's, there's different there's ways different of thinking about it. Actually, I, want to, I think you've actually hit this nail on the head before, and I want to bring back Bology on Bology then. Okay, which, sure. Which sure. would be... I think what you're saying is that trust is a competitive advantage in the current world mm. because if trust is high between a population and its government, that government yes. can do things to fight a virus that somebody else can't. And that means it's a better place to do your production, manufacturing, what have you. And so Absolutely. So this is the thing that I'm very upset about with the U.S., which is... I don't trust these people because they're bad. They're obviously bad. They're stupid. They're incompetent. They're kleptocratic. They're they're right, right. not technically adept. I I get bored of saying this because I I know people who are those things and they're sitting at home. They're not called up. Um, the, you could solve this problem tomorrow if you could call up the Mark Andreessen's, Patrick Collison's. Balaji Srinivasian's, Laura Demings. I mean, you know, there's any one of a number of people who are just very mentally agile. And if, if you had them addressing the country, you'd completely change the U.S. perspective on the virus. The key thing that we see is, is that I see Larry Kudlow and Steve Newkin on a, on a coronavirus panel. I'm just thinking like, what? 
So let me give you some like you know aspect of how this is actually happening in some way different maybe from so you buy into this idea that trust is a central asset oh absolutely I, in fact I've, I've talked about that a lot i mean i'm not a ideological so ideological anything usually <laughs> it's funny um what you one can go meta and say oh you're making an absolutist statement about absolutist statements no, i don't want to play fine. those things I, yeah, yeah okay fine. but let's just, say, let's just say ideology in general is about 100% consistency. But but I think a better model is ideology often identifies sliders, like poles, and then any particular situation requires you to set those sliders at some parameter values that are difficult to intuit in advance or even verbally defend. The only way you can defend it is outcome-based. Like, do people buy your product or not? Do they come to your country or not? Did you make the right set of trade-offs that you can give some kind of high-level ideological justification of maybe, but the specific parameter values, how much surveillance versus how much not, how much coercion versus how much voluntary, like those are just like the exact dials can't be discovered in my view by angels on the heads of a pin, um, but but solely by what people respond to or not and how much wealth and health is created for the population in a broad-based sense. Um Coming to your second point, so that's like a kind of like how I think about it is uh, ideology plays well, you know, verbally and on Twitter. Ideology is viral, but pragmatism is functional. And uh, and I think that that's like the, the Singapore style of combine whatever things you need to make something work, but get the highest health and wealth for your population. That's well, kind but of there's, a, there's another dimension, in my opinion. So Go you ahead. have the ideology playing well on the Internet. Uh, practicality, I understand what you're saying, but there's another thing, which is coherence. So for example, the New York Times, CNN, NPR, and the Democratic Party are coherent. They may be coherent around nonsense, right? Right. but if they all decide to start moving in one general direction, they will coordinate their movement enough that, in, in my opinion, the, the big knock against our world, our shared world, is that um, there's a tremendous amount of noise and in this haystack of noise are more often found the needles of truth than over in the establishment area. So in general, my feeling is, is that somebody in our network is usually on top of most of these topics before it's clear to anyone else. But there is a fair amount of noise to sort through. So your previous point was a very important one, which is how do we get competent people into positions of leadership, right? Um, and I, I'd say there's many dimensions to this. Let me give you one reassuring thing, which is um, Gates and Bezos are doing some amazing things with the resources they have. Um, for example, Bezos has said that Amazon is putting $4 billion of its profits into COVID-19 uh, supply chain stuff. And uh, Gates is spending billions of his own money on vaccines. And the critical thing, do you know the concept of bioavailability from uh, pharmaceuticals? Have you heard that concept? Okay. So if you uh, take take a drug, right, there's different ways you can take it intravenously, uh, orally. Sometimes, you know, you can inhale it and so on and so forth. And a critical question is, okay, you take 100, you know, like cc's of, uh, you know, something, and, or, you know, hundred units of some drug. And then the question is, is it actually, um, is it actually bioavailable? 
does it actually hit the uh, you know does it hit your system or does it leach out as it excreted and it's not properly metabolized and it's just in in one orifice out the other okay and um, bioavailability is often set to like a hundred percent for like intravenous administration but the point is that you might take a drug but it might not actually be that active you might just excrete it without actually it it hitting the relevant part of the body where you want it to excrete. And that's the difference between the $2 trillion that the U.S. government printed and the $4 billion that Amazon is allocating toward COVID-19. Amazon will be a very careful steward of that capital because it's run by Bezos and he's smart and competent. And and ultimately, there's one decision maker who's very smart and engaged, and that's him, to resolve any conflicts in how the money is allocated. The U.S. government's $2 trillion I remember seeing that and I was like, okay, well, how much of that is masks and vaccines and this and, you know, and, and drugs and testing and whatnot. And it, I, I think there was like something in there for like hospitals, but most of it was not that. It was just a gigantic pork barrel thing with everybody getting an ask in and, and so on and so forth. That was when capital was allocated politically rather than ideologically. So that was capital that was highly non-bioavailable. It was $2 trillion, but only a fraction of that actually hit the target of the virus um, as opposed to what Bezos and Gates were doing, which are very focused efforts with their own capital, one one thousandth as much capital, not two trillion, but like a billion. However, it was capital that because an individual was pointing it, it was actually on target as opposed to just, you know, sprayed all over the place, right? Um, well, it's on target for the individual, whatever that person is trying to accomplish. Correct. That's right. But um, I think that is where we're likely to go where we have these um, you know, West Coast leaders who have enough individual capital and know-how and networks and uh, capability, they're actually able to put a dent in this thing with far less resources than the state. And I think over time, what that leads to is um, building up larger and larger and larger audiences. And, and here's, here's why, let me talk about the audiences thing for a second. There's two different kinds of truths, right? At least there's uh, political truths and technical truths. And a political truth is something which is based on the software installed in people's heads. That is to say, you know, for example, where are the borders of a country? Or how much is a currency worth? Or who is a president? Those are ultimately things which uh, are based on the software installed in people's heads. And if you can change enough of that, if you can muscle them into believing something else, you can actually change where the border is located. You can change what the currency is worth. You can change who the president or you know the leader of some organization is. Okay. Then separately from that, there are technical truths, which are you know the diameter of this virus or you know the the value of um, this expression in math or uh, the gravitational constant, right? Those are things which no amount of muscling of people's brains is going to change because they're physics or they're math, right? They're science. And it's important. I mean, like the thing is that, uh, you know, there's also interesting things in the middle, right? Um, like something like cryptocurrency uses technical truths to uh, make it harder to change political truths in certain ways um, because people are coming to consensus on who holds what money, but cryptography is being used to make it difficult to, to muck with that. What's my point? Point is, um, political truths are important. Political truths are where a lot of where the money is. Political truths are 
where our entire establishment is focused on and they're incapable of thinking about technical truths at all. Here's an interesting point. If you can convince enough people, like, you know, if you can get enough backlinks, uh, then I think you can change things. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be um, through a standard process. Uh, I think, you know, for example, if you just built a large enough specialist social network in San Francisco, I bet you could win the election of San Francisco. That that would actually be an afterthought. Um, for example, if you built up uh, a San Francisco COVID-19 response community and you organized, and maybe San Francisco is not a great place to start, by the way, it's pretty hard not to crack. Okay. But, 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 but go ahead. The thing is, is that, look, I'll be honest, I don't really see between the West Coast, the East Coast, and the nostalgic perspective, which I seem to represent, none of us seem to have it right. But I'll be honest, I've spent enough time around West Coast billionaires to know that they don't part with large amounts of money very easily. <laughs> I mean, sure, sure. You know, no, no, seriously, there's, the, there's yeah. an incompetent news story that's constantly written about so-and-so has a, a limitless wallet. Um, you know, $10 million is like blowing his nose. And it's like, I've never met this person where $10 million is like blowing your nose. Right. I've never met someone so rich that they can't think about whether or not they want to spend $10 million on something. So we just had some sort of a rapid grant thing going on with like multiple billionaires all getting together to put up $11 million. So my first feeling about this is we're not that good on the West Coast to be able to take all this stuff on. No, not we all of it. Wait, 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 okay, wait, can okay. I say one thing? Can I say one thing though? No, no, no. Okay, I'm go. Gonna, I'm okay, going to get myself Fine. in trouble with my new tribe. Fine. My new tribe likes to talk an awful lot about disintermediating corrupt institutions, and then it can't actually get its own act together very deeply. Um, the magic is supposed to be when these people inhabit the regular institutions. Then the regular institutions have to up their game because you've got a lot of people asking unfamiliar questions. The klepto kleptocracy goes down because people who are making their money by doing new things are pissed off about people making money from stealing things. And we, we're treating the problem of how do we remove septuagenarians from our political parties who've been there forever or just got there, you know, like how do I get rid of Trump? Pretty easy to me, you just stop the Democratic Party from being as corrupt and soulless as it is. Um, how do you get rid of the people in the Democratic Party? Well, they're gonna die you know, in 20, in the next 25 years, the current crowd of people who seem to be in control are going to age out of this thing. My guess is, is that within five to 10 years, there are going to be far fewer of these types of people um, than there are now. And we're treating this weirdly as like a given, like we can't get rid of the rot. And I don't want to keep getting back into it. It's not that interesting, but I honestly don't think that the West Coast solution, it's like, you know, if you get a bunch of tech billionaires, Jack Dorsey has stepped up to the plate at a surprising level, if I understand correctly what he's giving through co for COVID. But, but I'm not talking but about giving. Let me be, be very precise about this. Precise. Sorry, but, but yes, I'm talking about directing the capital, remaining engaged, bringing the same thing that built the businesses and built the VC fortunes into the mix 
So the idea is that you have an idea of get shit done. You get, have an idea of fund, get stuff even, funded. Even more precise than that, though, which is what Amazon is doing is essentially rolling out the technologies to turn the Amazon campus into a green zone. And then it can sell that to other people as a business model to start expanding green zones out where they MVP it for their own company first. They show that it works because they've got outcome statistics in terms of who's sick and so on. And they essentially build a private healthcare system at slash management system and it radiates out from there. That is like the West Coast model rather than try to start with $2 trillion and a top-down kind of thing. I'm not talking about starting yeah. with the $2 trillion. No, no, no. I, I know, I know, I know. Amazon I, I, has a different situation because of its particular business model. Obviously, you know, a world that isn't going to go out shopping quite as much in brick and mortar. This has accelerated a move towards online purchases. All sorts of things are happening. And I understand that you can actually start to implement this and experiment within your companies, et cetera. Obviously what Elon is doing in a, at an atoms-based company rather than an electron-based company, you know, is different. Um, I, I, maybe I'm just bored of, uh, uh, of hearing my own take on this, but somehow there was a lost notion of competency that we had relatively recently that nobody thinks is even worth trying to get back. I'm not saying... I'm not saying it's not worth trying to get back. I am saying that I don't think the mechanism for doing so is going to be a front door mechanism. Okay. I, and I appreciate the, the kitty corner and trying to sneak up on things. And, you know, these are interesting. Yeah, sneak up. I, I wouldn't even initially call it sneak up on it because that involves like, it, it is more accepting what you can change today with what you have, doing that, and then seeing what door opens in two years or three years, right? By Bezos, for example, let's say Bezos going and fixing Amazon, which is within his power, right? I mean, a very important question, you know, like, a, you know, there's the kind of thing that they, they make people say when they're in uh, like rehabilitation facilities, like 50 cent raps about this. It's like, um, I'm going to butcher it. It's uh, God, give me the strength to know the thing to Except change the things, the things that I can. Change, yeah, yeah, yeah. The wisdom of the difference, right? Exactly. So, um, so at, essentially where is one's locus of control, right? Um, basically it is, you know, like, like what is it that, that you can actually control yourself without requiring some new powers, without getting new permissions from somebody, without winning an election? What can you do today? What's under one's control? Uh, and I have a feeling that if, uh, you know, there's somebody who comes up with a reproducible strategy to develop, to turn things into green zones, and it and shows that with outcome statistics, that that person will, by dint of that success, be able to parlay that into larger and larger successes. Yeah, and then know, you but, can see where it goes. Okay, yes, but then, you know, I'm going to have all my usual problems, right? Go, Which ahead. Is, Go ahead. What if that person does it through surveillance, through an unacceptable level of surveillance? I, I can't... Like, I can't stand surveillance. I friggin' hate it. And I've learned through time that most people don't feel this way. They accept surveillance. You know, they, they don't have a sense, like, you know, if I'm going to speak out about Jeff Epstein, if I'm going to speak out about our intelligence services, if I'm going to speak out about lots of different things, I want surveillance to be 
dangerous, illegal, expensive, and difficult. Somebody says, like, I don't know if it keeps me from getting sick. Let, let them know. Okay, so then we're going to have this. If you start telling me about these private solutions and green zones and, you know, this whole nine yards, I, I, I'm going to say, okay, well, I don't know where that's going. Maybe the idea is that we're going to get an incredibly Jeff Bezos type answer um, for what the world should be. Maybe I don't want a, an Amazon friendly version of this. Maybe I want a man in the street, median individual friendly version of this. Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm really frustrated, which is we're going to do what you're saying because we've got this particular class of people we can't get rid of. And they're, they're going to be gone soon. They're just not going to be gone in time. Like if, if you imagine that Andrew Yang, for example, uh, were the nominee rather than uh, Biden, presumptively, I guarantee you that Andrew Yang would be making use of this time to, to tell us what it sounded like to be in direct dialogue with technical people. He would have a more technical version of this thing. Mm -hmm. But he I mean, couldn't pop. Even, but, but, but uh, you know, it feels like I think one big difference between us on this is you're much, much more focused on electoral politics than I am. And um, the, I think one difference is I don't believe that that is actually the most important locus of how things get done. Um, you know, there's technology, there's a permanent bureaucracy, you know, there's, I mean, like, like folks are on Twitter, right? What's that? Yeah. Uh, I don't trust Google's relationship to China. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily tr tr trust tech's relationship to China. <laughs> I don't, I don't always love the business community's solutions for things, which are also corrupt. You know, like the way in which we talk about what we do is all of it is just returns to technology and competence and brilliance is a bit of a PR campaign, you know, and, and the government has their version of a PR campaign and legal, you know, I'm sorry, legacy media has their version of this. And I guess what my take on this is, is that I, I'm closer to the tech version, but there's a missing chunk, you see. And I think that science is the most important part of this missing chunk. The thing that's really flipping me out is that no one is trying to restore independent science, the kind of science you can do when you're not worried about your funding. So I'm going to talk about the PR campaign aspect. Um, I understand that vantage point. I think that uh, you don't want to be really on a PR campaign. You want to be on a results campaign. And, and um, no, no, we're going we're gonna to get into this. Let me hit it off at the past. If you okay. want to say what your results are, I'm going to say to you, okay, cases, uh, cases reduced per unit surveillance or cases reduced. Right. Exactly. Like so general, best thing is you can add that, you, can add that. you add that as a metric. And if it is truly the case, okay, that, um, you know, because here's the thing. You know um, what Chrome Web, Web Inspector is? It's okay. So if you launch any web browser, um, there's there's a thing you can do where you can show every tracking pixel and everything that loads on a web page, and you should just do that sometime. And you'll see, like, you go to TechCrunch.com, 
you're in like a hundred databases. Okay, you're you're already there, right? Now you can argue that is bad, and I would I would agree with you in many ways. And I think that there are technologies like zero knowledge and and so on that maybe can get us our brave is working on like zero knowledge ads. They can get us much of what we currently have with the internet with by also protecting privacy potentially. Um, or you move to like a micropayment ecosystem where you're just sending the money and not your information. Lots of different models are there. But I look at, um, I'm pro-privacy, pro-decentralization, pro-encryption. I think that we can get there with some combination of technology and policy and and, and whatnot. Uh, however, I also recognize that maybe we've got only a stone ax right now and we've got a beast that's coming at us and you know, take that thing out first and then figure it out later, right? And there's, now there's, there's another no, possibility. No, no. I think my point would be consider fragging your commanding officer first, <laughs> putting somebody competent in charge, and then regrouping. Like, what's the next part of the plan? If we can't get rid of our commanding officer, then we've got a real problem. So, I mean, the thing is that um, a better way of doing it, I think, is just pulling the backlinks away. Okay. So take your example. It's, I mean, look, you can't do this in a platoon or whatever, but a guy goes off and says, uh, if it were, if it were legitimate, it's better, it's better in a startup. Okay. Let me use that analogy rather than a platoon. Cause there's like, you know, being disobedient in the military is, is different. Um, but you've got a company and, uh, you know, let's say the trader is eight, you know, they just left and they just did their own thing. And the folks who followed them, followed them, it's a free country. And so the backlinks that were pointing in this direction are now pointing in another direction. So if you pull enough backlinks over, then you've reformed this system without changing it in a direct way. You haven't taken it on in the front. You've taken on the back door. Go ahead. So the United States of blockchain and Not the blockchain idea only. Blockchain it's only. a tool. It's no, a tool. I'm just, I'm just, I, I, I think that this is kind of a weird intellectual impasse, um, mm. which is, I'm not disagreeing with you, Balaji, that the current system is corrupt, doesn't work, can't get it done, new things are exciting, they're happening elsewhere. I, I think we live in a persistent fantasy either about um, what's possible with sort of West Coast mentality. Um, well, I can say one thing that I haven't, we haven't talked about, which, which, which I think is very important. Um, I think that the layer that how would you reform the East Coast with West Coast tactics? Okay, let's talk, maybe talk about that for a second. I think that, um, for example, what Bloomberg did where he spent like $500 million on the election, at, at least as reported, I think that was a waste of waste of money. Uh, but I do think that an equivalent amount of money spent on um, personal media corporations that is getting as many people to do Substack-like things as possible that are um, broadly aligned with um, the future, like with technology, they're pro, uh, you know, transhumanism, they're pro all of this good stuff. That would have actually a major impact. And it's something that can be funded. It's something that doesn't require a huge amount of resources. It's something that can probably at least break even. Um, not that media companies necessarily make a ton of money, but the reason is that writing is fighting. And if you have a large number of new writers who are scientists and engineers, and 
crucially, these should be, I think, citizen journalists as opposed to corporate journalists. They're not full-time journalists. They have personal media corporations, um, meaning they basically have like a, like a, they're getting like a thousand dollars a year or $2,000 a year from a Substack equivalent or Substack itself. And, uh, you know, they, they don't have, this is not something they're doing full-time. This is a model where it's something in between like an, a blogger and a journalist, but it, it, it is something where you've got a, like a, a serious hobby, okay, of writing. And if you had a thousand people like that in SF, that, you know, or, or anywhere, um, that would definitely shift the debate on a topic. And, and it would it would shift electoral politics. It would shift the Overton window. I, I, it would shift I, I really a lot of things. Yeah. You, you don't agree. some kind of disagree. My feeling is, is that there are plenty of smart, interesting people. You can find them all over the internet. It has nothing to do with anything. The key thing has to do with this sort of centralized exchange that I've called the gated institutional narrative. And the idea is it's a world that only listens to itself. You can say the smartest things in the world. Like you got attacked by tech journalists, I assume. Air, for, air, everybody's being attacked by tech journalists. That's all they do. Yeah, but for being early on COVID. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah that's yeah. true. That's yes. true. Yes. Okay. Um, so whatever that group of people is that seems to continue to persist no matter how many times they get things wrong, they're clearly upset, they're angry, they're pissed off, they always have a job. Okay? What I'm talking about is, roughly speaking, we did not get independence to the people who could use it, and we didn't seat them in institutional chairs. And I don't know why I seem to be the only person on this particular kick. It's clear as day to me. But the idea is, you know, and let me go back to Noam Chomsky. Why does Noam Chomsky sit at MIT? He's in his 90s. It's because we used to have people like you would be a you would be a professor. Okay, but let me pause you there though. Isn't it better that Larry and Sergey went and did Google than became professors at Stanford, or that Zuckerberg went and did Facebook rather than becoming a professor at Harvard? I, I can't. I can't do this. Yes, for for a few of the winners. But do you know how many people? who were supposed to be, who became neither Larry nor, nor Sergey, and didn't end up in a position, in a chair where they could do anything. Like, you know, the FDA is in shambles, the CDC is in shambles, Harvard's in shambles. You need people with agency protected from the, the people who want to control them by regulating whether they have a job on Monday if they mouth off on Friday. There's okay. no substitute. So, so, I, I think that really what I'm trying to say, Balaji, is that there is no substitute for journalistic independence or academic freedom. It's not on the blockchain. It's not a question of, you know, mostly speaking, the very rich people that we discuss um, on the West Coast who have made it as so-called so technologists. First of all, they're really not technologists. They're really business people. And they happen to do <laughs> their business. It is both. It is both. But go ahead. But very often, the people who are really technologists work for them. I'm sorry to say it. I'm not saying... It, there are all sorts of weird things that the, the, the West Coast does differently. And one thing is, is that it tries to bury the concept that they're actual... Like, we'll always talk about Larry and Sergey, and we'll never talk about the mas master coder who came up with MapReduce, you know? Jeff Dean? Yeah. And Sergey Gemowat? Yeah. yeah. I know. Uh, you, I know you do because you're local. That's, but that was my point. 
If I said Jeff Dean, do you, do you think that the world in general knows who he is? No, but the people who who who, who should know do know. Um, no, I mean, well, actually, actually, I should, I, people, actually let me ask for a second. People, many more I think, people should know. You, I think you're right about that. Uh, so, but but here's the thing: is um, okay. A few different things. So, so several different things to shoot out there. First, you talked about um, folks being under economic sanctions, such that they couldn't speak freely. And, you know, how does the blockchain, you know, solve that? Actually, this is something the blockchain is pretty good at for two reasons. First is uh, you can earn pseudonymously. So you can separate out your earning name, your speaking name, and your real name so that you only use your real name on official forms. You speak under one pseudonym and earn under yet a third. And that starts to uh, isolate your your job from your speech, from your um, like, you know, kind of your, your real name, right? So that's kind of one aspect. The second aspect is that the mainstreaming of crypto and, and also cryptography as well as cryptocurrency is mainstreaming encryption. And so technologies like Keybase and so on allow you to communicate with others or even publish your thoughts pseudonymously um, or in encrypted fashion without someone being able to target you for thought crime, right? So, so I actually do think that those two things are pretty important. Okay, we're going to get into another one of these things. We're, but, my, but, my point is, but there's, there's thought, some, okay. thought, it's like we we're constantly working around something. You know, like what's the problem with thought crime? The problem with thought crime is we've got a bunch of people terrifying everybody, tiny number of people terrifying everyone. That if you observe what you see with your own eyes or hear with your own ears. Uh, you're Satan, you know? I don't even know why, for example. I have no idea why my my world is so convinced that I should never mention the Wuhan lab or you're a crazy person. Like, I, I don't even know where that comes from. It's it's not part of science. It's not part of being a grown-up. It's it's some sort of a directive that I don't understand. I, I can't grasp it. It's decentralized consensus. It's basically some... It's 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 quasi decentralized, and here's what I mean: it's um, it's not something where most of the people repeating it were told to repeat it. It is that they saw it on social media, or they heard it from somebody, and they saw the tone in which it was uttered, and it's usually uttered in like a contemptuous tone, where A is looking down on B, and they don't want to be the person looked down on, um, and so then it's repeated that way. Now, some of them actually go and diligence it for its factual characteristics, but that's a rare kind of you remember, thing. Do you remember the Sinclair Broadcasting Network's uh, public service? Yeah, 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 right. The only thing, the thing that was funny about that is that happens all the time. That was just something where someone put in the effort to go and get all of those clips out of a TV news search engine, which was impressive and actually worth doing. But, you know, that happens all the time for all kinds of stories. You know, you, you could, it's, it's very- Well, John Stewart you know, made something of a career showing that there were talking points and that everybody fanned out from the party. Right, right, repeat right, exactly right. The same. Yep. But like at some level, look, I, I think we're going around and around on, on something which I would like to, to just exit from. I understand that the current situation looks hopeless and pointless and that we have new technologies and fine. Can I give a positive vision of the future? Like what things, uh, you know, 
Yeah, why don't you close close us out with a positive vision of the future, and you and I can talk about other things on another another show. That'd be great. Okay, great. So, positive vision of the future. Um, first, I think we're going to get uh, a Y-shaped recovery, which is to say, not V-shaped where it bounces back, or W-shaped where it bounces up and down, but Y-shaped in the sense of we were on one branch of the economy, and now we're taking a totally different one. And so, the bad part about that is, I think we're deprecating the physical leisure economy. So bars, concerts, restaurants, travel, hotels, a lot of that stuff uh, will be looked back on nostalgically when, you know, a middle-class person could easily travel and vacation meant, you know, like, like international travel. I think, I think air travel, that type of stuff is going to be less frequent, but where does the reallocation go to? Um, Info, bio, crypto, robo, um, agro and uh, maybe astro okay so info anything digital that's obvious so that just continues like you know um but that includes virtual reality that includes um you know cryptocurrencies and so on um bio also goes without saying uh, i think this is now people have talked about this being the century of biology but i think we're going to get 50 years of progress in 10 or even faster um and it's not going to stop at Corona. It's going to be something where one thing that's actually underappreciated, people have gotten used to waking up in the morning and checking dashboards. Uh, they usually check it for you know their email dashboard, personal dashboard, or their company dashboard, their metrics. But now they're checking it for countries, and they're checking it not just for money or things like that, but for health. That's very new. It's not like people didn't look at life expectancy, but real-time dashboards of how countries are doing in terms of health and wealth starts to reorient towards better metrics, I think, for society. And hopefully we apply that to tracking diabetes and heart disease. I'm not saying everybody will track it to the same extent they're tracking corona, but in the same way the financial crisis awakened an entire generation to thinking about the Fed and the money supply and being aware of those graphs, I think you're going to have a much larger number of people looking at health. So we start thinking about important problems and maybe we throw, you know, not just money, but energy and time and intelligence at anti-aging, at brain-machine interface, at limb regeneration, at, you know, like uh, uh, stem cells, all of these kinds of things exist, but could use a shot in the arm. Okay. So bio. Um, then crypto, I think uh, this is both, I mean, obviously I'm very bull on crypto, but crypto is um, the crypto economy. It is, it's Bitcoin, but it's also in, in many red zones and in places where there's market controls being put in place. Um, I think crypto is going to be essential. Robo, again, goes without saying, but uh, whether it's drone delivery, I don't know if you've seen these sidewalk robots that are rolling around, uh, whether it's um, basically the manufacturing robots, uh, whether it's bringing supply chains back to the US and then- Boston using, Dynamics in Singapore. Boston Dynamics in Singapore, right, exactly. Uh, I love all that stuff um, because anytime you can have a robot do something, you're freeing up a human to do a higher value thing. And, or in this case, you've also got the hygiene argument where- You'd much rather have one human and five robots touch something than, you know, um, like a. Like, you know like something? A, like six I humans, can six just humans. feel it. You're going to tell me that, um, you know, first it's going to be, well, we already have robots that bark orders. Now we're just adding <laughs> tasers. No, no. I mean, like, tasers, like, here's the thing. Here's then it's going to be like drones with, with, uh, with 50 caliber ammunition. And the idea is that everything's going to be incrementally just a little. 
Like we do. So, really so, I'm very conscious of the slippery slope argument, and in fact, I agree with it. What I'm what I'm basically saying when I made that previous comment, uh, what I was basically saying is that um, we have the costs of this already in the sense of we have this NSA surveillance apparatus. It's already there. You'd, you'd assume, hopefully, that someone could use it for good because what is it being used for otherwise? I don't know, right? Um, or or now we I could now shrink I, it. We could shrink it. That's right. But but I think that, um, you know- And make it, you know, make it like responsive to civic civil liberties. Sure, absolutely. You know, or you have alternatively a competent state which takes root privileges for a period of time and then either gives them up or is forced to give them up later, right? But okay, so just finishing like the good scenario- um, so robo is, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, it's, it's robotic factories. It's basically like the real future, right? Um, it's autonomy, it's drones, it's, it's automation of all kinds. Uh, and then agro is actually kind of part of, you know, it's got pieces of the others, but certainly food production is going to be a big thing. Um, and, uh, but, but food production in a hygienic way, you know, whether like meatpacking plants, for example, are probably going to get robotized just given that they've. Like they've all got corona infections, um, and uh, you know maybe people will eat um, uh, you know foods that are less amenable to um, you know for example the organic foods or or the free range chicken type stuff is less factory farm and therefore there's less people around and so it's less I think intensive and and so maybe it has a lower infection rate that kind of thing may happen right but. So those sectors, info, bio, crypto, uh, robo, agro, and the last astro with what Elon is doing with Starlink, um, what those combined for are really interesting scenarios. Like, for example, go and move from the city out to a really cheap rural area with a huge house, uh, and um, it's like one-tenth the cost or whatever, depending on how far out you go. And you've got Starlink, so you've got internet. Uh, Every job is remote work, so you can pick from any job and switch jobs very easily. The liquidity of global labor markets shoots up. Um, you have drone delivery, and so you're connected, you know, via Amazon. You have fewer drives, but you're but they're self-driving. Your carbon autonomous. footprint autonomous. goes down. I agree. What's that? What's that? Your carbon footprint goes way down. Your carbon footprint goes way down. That's right, and you, you're you're in tune with nature. You know, you can walk outside and see green. Um, and, uh, you're basically, it's like, it's like a techno rural sort of lifestyle. Um, somebody told me Asimov's book, the naked Sun," talks about something like this. And I have to go and read it because I, I had not read it until it was mentioned. I should say I also did an intro to one of my episodes where I talked about my wife's general belief, which is that, uh, coronavirus effectively just accelerates all aspects of the future that were being held back. Yes, that's right. So let's talk about three of the biggest ones, right? Um, education, healthcare, and um, and real estate. So uh, last one first, real estate. So for the last, I don't know how many years, people in San Francisco and big cities have all been talking about, oh my God, we can't build skyscrapers, you know, and, and because of like, you know, the NIMBY versus YIMBY thing. And generally I've been on the YIMBY side, you know, you know, it reduces costs to be able to build, et cetera. But now we may obviate that entirely. For example, one of the things I've been talking about on Twitter um, VR has gotten really good. Oculus Quest is, I think, the most important device since the iPhone. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing, right? And it's underhyped relative to how good it is. Well, uh, we, I we, think, we, I think. The, the previous version seemed to have been slightly overhyped, and then people lost interest and right, didn't take right. into account what would change. 
That's right. That's right. So um, one of the things I'm doing is experiments with portfolio companies of mine where everybody's buying Oculus Quests and seeing if they can do effectively like a virtual office. Okay. Uh, now there's another version of this, which is um, let's say that folks move out from the cities because cities are big crowds, basically, right? Like, remember, the one thing I think is a pretty sure bet will decline are big crowds. And when I say decline doesn't mean go to zero, but it means decline. decline I, I'm right? with you. Right. Okay. So cities and big crowds in general. So a city is like a, it's like a persistent big crowd. You get away from the city. You go to a techno rural kind of thing. You've got a backyard now. What you could do is you could drop a shipping container that is both a home office and a VR room in the backyard. Now it doesn't have to be exactly a shipping container. It could be a modular. Okay. But you've got home office plus VR room. And uh, what's interesting is for a company, I would rather for my 10 employees pay, let's say a hundred K for 10 VR rooms and the VR gear. Um, and then I don't have to pay anything more. Right. Like it's not, it's not a lease. It's like a piece of capital equipment. It's like an amazing perk that you get. And, and you know, maybe maybe it's like uh, something where the employee's in on half of it. There's all kinds of deals or whatever you can work out with that. But point is, now you've done something where you've decentralized commercial real estate. Um, you've networked together a bunch of cheap pieces of property to create something where you can now deliver the office itself as a service. Okay, so that is to say, you've got these VR rooms, you deliver a virtual office in VR, and uh, you can change the, the lighting. You can have rooms that have persistent whiteboards. You can teleport somebody in for a business meeting. Um, this concept of actually making Microsoft Office, Microsoft Office VR or whatever, that will actually happen. Uh, I think it's pretty cool. Go ahead. Not the virus we wanted, but the virus we needed. Maybe. Okay. So what that does also it gets people out, you know, in, in nature, right? And yeah, yeah. You, have, you have, you have, the other thing about like a VR lifestyle is, uh, you're standing more and it's it's actually better in some ways than sitting, right? Yes, there's, right, look, there's a lot of benefit. Yeah, so there's lots of things that will happen. So I'll, let I, me give you two more. Let me give you two more. Education, okay? So colleges, the entire, this is something that's near to your heart. Um, you know, uh, my, my um, friend slash colleague uh, Noah Smith actually tweeted about this, about this coming college apocalypse, mentioned that state funding is being cut. Foreign students aren't coming because both immigration and lack of demand and domestic students aren't coming. Uh, and for if, if the pandemic goes on such that campuses don't reopen in the fall, no one wants to pay 50K for Zoom.edu. Um, and so uh, suddenly you've got a tension between what the colleges think they're delivering in terms of benefit and what they're actually delivering. And so I think you're going to have a wily e. Coyote thing with lots of bankruptcies. Uh, and the fourth, you know, the thing that, that happens in addition to those three factors uh, the fourth factor is all the online education that's been built over the last 10 years. I think that goes vertical. So we start, start to actually get a future where anybody can get a quality technical or trade education, I think, online um, for a fraction of the cost and actually unlock you know, the power of the internet on that. And that's another major thing. And third is healthcare. So we also already mentioned bio, but these telemedicine apps, like what India is doing with the Rogia Setu, um, put the doctor and the prescriptions and the EHR and so on in there. And this is something that should have happened a long, long time ago, but telemedicine suddenly becomes a first line of defense that's already happening in the US. So telemedicine becomes first line of defense. You can get a house call. You can actually get prescriptions. You don't have to go down to the doctor. People will see the doctor more frequently. You'll actually have checkups. You'll have someone monitoring you. It becomes convenient. Um, 
And so you start hyper deflating at least one aspect of medicine, which is the, you know, the, the GP visit, general practitioner visit. So you start so actually you start going after, actually going go after, go ahead. Great points. All things that are going to change some for the better. There's no way to not to avoid blowing people some good. Um, Biology, I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to, to have some, have some positivity on it. That's all. I, I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. I want to end it here because it is positive and I, and I don't disagree. And, and we've been on this as well. I think that, this idea that many aspects of the future that have been held back are going to be beneficial. Yep. Yep. Um, I would like to talk to you, of course, at great length about a lot of different topics. Uh, you're one of my favorite divergent minds out there and not just mine. A lot of people in my circle hold you in very high regards. I'm so glad we were able to bring you. You're the first remote, I think, that we've done uh, in the history of the show. So um, I wanted just to say thank you for coming through the portal and uh, do you want to say anything else about what you're doing, where we should be looking for you? Sure. Follow me at twitter.com front slash BiologyS, and I'll probably announce some stuff and uh, uh, on my Twitter feed, and you can see it then. All right. So maybe there's some interesting things coming up. You've been through the portal with Balaji Srinivasan, general partner at Anderson Horowitz, former CTO of Coinbase, and uh, somebody who has been very active uh, in the biotechnology sphere, in fact, shepherding a company to public offering, or, or sorry, rather a purchase, uh, I believe, for over $300 million, and one of the people who was first and earliest and clearest on the coronavirus COVID-19 situation. So please uh, try to find us uh, wherever you listen to podcasts on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, also, head over to our YouTube channel and not only subscribe, but be sure to click the bell icon to be notified whenever the next video drops. Um, and we will hopefully be back with Balaji on other topics. Uh, thanks for hanging in there and stay safe out there. 